let's call us to order. Monica, can I get a roll call? Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. He's, he's here. He's, he's there. I see him. Um, Trustee DeVries. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Peterson. Also there. All right, we do have a quorum. So welcome everyone. Um, thank you for being here. So I wanted to acknowledge first uh, Nurses Week that just passed. Um, just want to acknowledge all of our fearless uh, caregivers out there on the front lines, uh, always, all the time, but particularly during this time. So I know everyone seems to be on mute, but. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and I know we have uh, our retreat coming up over the next day and a half, but we're going to get to really dive into some of the critical issues that are facing us tonight. We'll be doing our regular business, and so we'll obviously hear about a lot of those things and then looking forward to seeing everyone again tomorrow. So with that, I'll hand it over to Delvecchio for the CEO report. Uh, if I could just uh, jump in, uh, Trust Avalo, there is one uh, public comment. Okay. Not on an item. Okay, give me a second here. Okay, so I have one um, public speaker that wanted to be um, acknowledged as a former John George patient. Speaker. Do we have our public speaker? You may be muted. Okay, maybe we can come back to public comment, try again after the CEO report. Okay. Okay. CEO. Hey, um, can, can you guys hear me? Everybody can hear me? Yeah. Uh, good evening, trustees and, and uh, everyone else. Um, uh, hope everyone's doing well. Uh, like uh, Trustee Abelada, I will try to limit my remarks given that we will be spending a lot together uh, in the next uh, couple of uh, days. Uh, but I did want to say, get into order, let me, let me echo uh, Trustee Abelada's uh, uh, sentiments. We uh, celebrated a couple of uh, uh, weeks as we do in healthcare uh, every year, and this year was particularly unique given the circumstances uh, uh, that we're all facing across the, the country and the world. So um, uh, back in March, and I think we acknowledged it uh, last month, we had Doctors Week, uh, but in the last couple of weeks, we had Nurses Week and uh, Hospital Worker uh, Week, and this week is actually uh, uh, National Nursing Home uh, Week. Uh, so we uh, celebrate uh, uh, our tremendous um, staff across our system, particularly with our, our caregivers and uh, leaders and our skilled nursing facilities at uh, Fairmont and Offshore and uh, Park Bridge uh, for the outstanding uh, every day, but again, especially during this uh, time period. Um, I, again, didn't want to go into a lot of things, and we have some uh, reports from our leaders uh, Later in the in the agenda, standing sort of things, particularly around our, our uh, top priorities these days, our COVID nineteen response, uh, 
um, as well as our ongoing efforts to make sure that our regulatory uh, compliance is uh, uh, robust and sufficient as we anticipate our follow-up visits. Um, um, so, but with respect to COVID-19, I, I would be remiss here. A couple of things I, I wanted to point out. Um, one of the things that's really been uh, very helpful and I uh, would like the trustees to know that uh, a best practice that I think we will continue, not to say that uh, people aren't zoomed out uh, uh, probably at this point, but um, we do a weekly town hall and uh, we continue to have attendance uh, in the 400 to 500 uh, uh, staff member uh, range every week in a very robust dialogue. Uh, and I really uh, thank a lot of the clinical uh, and administrative leaders who join me in those calls. And we build a lot of uh, great questions from our staff and leaders across the system and try to provide some concurrent and real-time reports uh, during those uh, discussions, including last week where we actually had Dr. Felicia Tornabene giving a live um, uh, feed right from our San Leandro testing site that we uh, brought up uh, uh, with her uh, leadership and, and countless others. So great, a great effort that I, I foresee that we will continue. This is uh, really kind of revolutionize our um, town halls that we used to have like three times uh, a year or four times a year in multiple venues. And I don't think we were getting that type of um, um, uh, attendance and participation. So this is much more robust and uh, we're having a lot more participation. So I, I see this continuing in the foreseeable future. Uh, again, notwithstanding the fact that people probably zoomed out. So we'll be uh, judicious with it. Uh, I also wanted to thank and uh, trust you have a lot of may say something later, I think, for the COVID-19 task force. Um, uh, a great uh, um, way to steer our, our efforts in terms of continuing our efforts around response and preparedness and our continued uh, um, uh, vigilance uh, for this effort and uh, not uh, just a, a look at uh, our, our, our safety within the organization and our assessment partnering with the county to look at uh, adequacy of uh, safety practice, PPEs and the like uh, within the organization and our evolution in that respect, uh, but also, which I know countless hours and I want to thank the trustees and staff who've been involved in that, uh, but also things around equity and uh, again, best practices, one of which um, we've been uh, one of these quick things that we did around social distancing or personal, say, and remote um, uh, working. Uh, we've always had a teleworking or telecommuting uh, policy in the organization and used it somewhat sparingly and in our efforts to uh, uh, ensure as much uh, safety uh, as we could for our workforce and our patients. Uh, we uh, uh, really worked with our IT team and a lot of our leaders and staff to ratchet that up. And that has been uh, very well received, I think, from the staff, both of whom, th those who've been able to avail themselves of it, but also those who are, uh, continue because of the nature of their work uh, to show up on site. And uh, it's kind of freed up traffic, as you know, for a lot of people. Parking has been better in some sites uh, uh, where that was uh, more of a challenge. But we continue, and I know a lot of our staff have uh, raised to our trustees in our COVID-19 uh, task force asked us to look into uh, are there ways that we could make that a little bit more standard across the organization as we continue into this period of no um, no vaccine in place. Quite actively at that end of us make countless hours uh, looking at what our current practice have been, trying to step back and say now that this is going to be a lot longer or potentially a lot longer, what have been the benefits of this? What are the different considerations that you have to have as a standard practice for both 
facilitating your work from staff, but also providing uh, robust and sufficient uh, management of the, the work uh, for the organization. So uh, we've done a lot of work at looking at some of the concerns that were raised and trying to address those with local management. We're looking at it more systemically and uh, expect uh, more from that as we try to uh, fashion, uh, I think, what everyone's calling the new norm uh, for us these days. But I want to thank the uh, COVID-19 task force for uh, continuing to have focus on that, on the equity issues, on the uh, PPE and safety issues and the like. Um, so I want to raise to the board that, as you know, the financial impact of all of this is still something we're trying to uh, get greater clarity on. And uh, while we're also, while, while we're certainly uh, tracking the reduction in the volume uh, um, uh, in the organization, which is slowly starting to tick back up, even though we haven't fully uh, or at all actually ratcheted up any of our restoration of services. We're getting uh, people coming into the hospital because they're sick and uh, delayed care and also just changes in health status. And so just a slow uptick, not a lot uh, or not, where we were before, I should say, but certainly a little bit more than where we were uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, but um, while we are while we're looking into that, we've been looking at how are we availing ourselves of various aids and relief uh, measures that are being uh, um, promulgated at the federal level, at the state level, and otherwise. And I'm happy to say those things are coming through, and they're 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 helping us out. And I won't go into a ton of detail there, but it's really the biggest help for us has been more cash flow, and uh, some of that has been in the form of grants, some of it has just been in the form of uh, a timely payments and a, a continued improvement of our ref cycle. Um, um, uh, it, it is if it, it if nothing else, it's helping us to weather the storm. Uh, it may be pushing the um, the impact down the down the uh, road, if you will, a, a little bit um, as we continue to see uh, some of those impacts come in a little bit later. Uh, but it is certainly helping us out in this uh, continued effort in that respect. Uh, I also just want to share with you, and the last thing I'll share is just ongoing advocacy, and uh, we've been doing a lot of. Um, uh, work in that respect. Um, uh, some of you uh, may have noticed that I participated along with a couple of leaders around the state in a series of press conferences uh, that were coordinated by the California Hospital Association just to kind of speak to the impact of um, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in organizations across the state, delivery organizations. I was happy to do that and really um, share our story and the impact it's having on the community we serve at as well as our organization. Uh, I participated in a webcast from a national group that was around uh, the coronavirus impact, uh, particularly to safety net hospitals, and uh, that is uh, slowly being disseminated uh, as well. But uh, uh, yet again, another opportunity. No, I just uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yet again, another opportunity to share share our story. Uh, we've been we've had some one on one time. Uh, some of the beauty of uh, of this time uh, is that a lot of our elected officials are uh, sheltering in place, just like us. And so we've been able to have uh, Zoom conferences with um, uh, members of Congress, uh, members of the State Assembly, and some of our trustees have participated on those calls, which I thank you for, and being able to speak to them directly around advocacy for the work they're doing and for our community has been a great. Um, uh, benefit during this time period. Uh, we've been working with our health plans who have been very interested and willing to uh, step up, um, particularly I want to uh, acknowledge the Alameda Alliance, but others as well in terms of uh, trying to help us with cash flow and helping us with uh, 
uh, just support during this time period. And then lastly, philanthropy. Um, uh, as you know, our foundation has um, um, always been raising money for the organization, but uh, directing their attention and focus on supporting us here uh, um, through the acquisition of uh, donations of in-kind, uh, things like PPE, mask, and hand sanitizer and other sorts of things, but also uh, cash donations, food donations, and things like that to support our frontline workers. Um, and uh, one of the uh, things there uh, is we've, um, we have been working on and we established a uh, corporate council with some of our local um, uh, executives of organizations here uh, in the Bay Area to help us to really um, continue to look at um, expanding um, notions of innovation in the care and services we provide uh, throughout Alameda Health System and how we may be able to leverage some of the uh, expertise and some of the um, uh, resources of some of our um, uh, corporate partners around the, uh, the area to support the needs of the community that we serve. So very early on in that effort, but very excited about the prospect of it. We have three local um, um, CEOs or executives in some of our organizations, including paramedics and uh, biopharmaceutical and uh, behavioral health who are participating in the effort so far. So that's all I have to say. Actually, I'm sorry. One last thing I really want to say. Uh, we had great um, recognition for our frontline uh, uh, workers, uh, both clinical and non-clinical, from a lot of the uh, uh, fellow first responders, so our, our um, uh, uh, paramedics, our uh, police officers, uh, sheriff's departments, and others uh, over the last week, and that's just been wonderful. And next Tuesday, even the Alameda County Sheriff's Department is going to do a um, – a, uh, a bagpipe uh, national anthem and flag presentation at Highland on Tuesday uh, in recognition of our, our, our care providers uh, 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 there as well. So really, really appreciate the, the love from our, our compadres. Uh, I think it's just been very well received and a great show of, of uh, collective spirit from all of us and just want to make sure you're aware of that. And with that, I'm, I, I uh, yield back and uh, thank you for the time uh, and thank you for the support. Fantastic. Trustee Hernandez? Yeah. Um, Del I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about that corporate council. Did that originate from within AHS or is that a broader organization? And then um, are you being uh, pulled into that work yourself or is it being done with others on the ELT? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Uh, actually, uh, it was a brainchild of a, a, a relatively new uh, a member of the foundation uh, staff, uh, a young lady by the name of Ange- Angela Smith, uh, and she's been working closely with me directly. Uh, we um, kind of framed it, and uh, and she's been doing a lot of the active outreach along with me. We've made some visits around the Bay Area to a couple of our companies uh, uh, and actually solicited uh, participation, support for the foundation, but uh, participation in this council. And uh, we launched our first meeting on April 28th and uh, looking forward to the second one in the fall. So right now it's directly with me and uh, those executives, but um, uh, in gearing up for the next meeting, actually, where um, I am involving uh, with her some of our other executive leaders and clinical leaders, actually, we reached out to to uh, kind of get a good um, awareness of current state of innovation in the organization and ideas that we have around uh, gaps that we're seeing in needs for the community uh, as a basis of which to try to uh, seed some of that um, uh, capital uh, and intelligence from uh, some of our partners uh, to help us to address some of those needs. Great. Thanks. Sure. Other questions for our CEO? Okay, hearing none, we'll go on to the medical staff reports. 
Would you like to start, Dr. Villar? Sure, thank you. Um, our credentialing packet got approved in QPSC. Uh, the other topics I was hoping to bring up are threefold. The, uh, the thing that's on the center of probably the med staff's mind right now is the re-entry into regular life after um, we've been in shelter in place. So, you know, I know that there are um, an enormous amount of energy being poured into both the planning of us reopening and going back to a new normal and a lot of executive time put together to, to kind of build a construct of how that will look. I think from the med staff side, there's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done in, in putting together the proposal or filling out the, the questionnaire that the executives sent out to um, describe what their vision and how it would look for each department. You know, the, the one thing I would want to push forward is that um, at this point, it's not clear to the med staff how that's being prioritized. And um, not, to, not to have a special interest, since I am a surgeon, I can safely say the Department of Surgery are like a lot of the horses behind the gate with the, right before the race starts. We're so ready to get back into the OR and start really contributing to the financial health by doing elective cases. Um, and I think that, you know, at this point, it's not totally clear how this, re this reopening is going to be prioritized. We're hoping that some of the higher money-making endeavors will um, be a priority to get started early. But I don't think we have that guarantee yet. So I think in the next several days, we'll be reaching out you know, as a med staff to try to better understand that. I've uh, missed my one-on-one -on -one with Mr. Finley this month so far, so I'm hoping I can get some, some FaceTime or some Zoom time with him that we can have this conversation. Um, but I did want to put it out there that, that the med staff particularly is just really um, interested in what this will look like and how we can best um, do it to for the financial and the overall health of the institution. I think that that's our center goal right now is to get back and to keep the hospital healthy, you know, from a systems and a financial standpoint. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, I kind of opened Pandora's box a little bit with the med staff recently when I asked for a check-in on how people were feeling. And I got the full gamut of responses in terms of um, us dealing with the pandemic and the impact it's having both on the departments and the individuals within the departments. Um, there was everything from just a celebratory and congratulatory stance, especially around some of the more harder hit units like the ER and the um, ICU. There was, uh, and I, I know that this has been said before, but um, our ICU nurses particularly have been incredible. And so I'm trying to think of what we as a med staff can do to thank the nurses both in the ICU and the ER particularly um, for the, the extra amount of, of effort and courage and just amazing willingness to work and participate in patient care at this time that's so uncertain. Um, the other thing that that struck me while the med staff was um, kind of going through this exercise of, of talking about what was 
working, what was not working, is the impact that the last two months has had on the departments as a whole and on the individuals within the department. And the, the takeaway I had was that it actually changed my mind about some things that I was pretty entrenched about. And, you know, you all know how interested and much of an advocate for disaster medicine I am particularly. I think I've probably said it more times than you wish to hear. Um, and so I'm, I'm very regimented and kind of very systematic in my way of thinking about how to, how to respond to disasters. I, I really was kind of taken aback after I had a conversation and started realizing from some other um, communications that I received this past the level of stress that the individual providers have felt and how we don't have a tangible measurement for how that's going to impact us and how it's impacting us currently. It's kind of ironic that at least three providers who have been either in the ICU or in the emergency department have shared with me recently that they're having health problems and they're all stress related, whether it's, whether it's um, shingles or whether it's, you know, apparently there's, there's an eye disorder that you can get if you're super stressed or taking steroids and some of them have that. So there's, there's actually physical manifestations starting to happen within the staff because of the level of stress that they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And this hospital experiences stress as a norm. I mean, we're a trauma center, for goodness sake. And, you know, we're used to taking care of sick patients. But this, this experience, this pandemic, has put us in a different place. It's put us in a place where physician and nurse and RT and physical therapy exposure to this virus or the threat of it has has put us on a different level of minute-to-minute and day-to-day stress that I worry is going to affect us long-term. And how that how that connects to my being a disaster doc is that, you know, I see a protocol or I see a, I see a, a mandate from the Incident Command Center about a certain type of mask we're supposed to wear. And I'm like, yeah, you guys got to just step in line. And we've got to do this because it's going to, you know, burn up our resources if we don't do it that way. After watching and talking to the staff, and I'll tell you my other vignette is I was in the ER on call recently and saw a patient spit on a nurse. It was a patient who was psychotic, or they may have been drunk, or both. Um, not a PUI, not in a space where people were wearing, were, were mandated to wear the highest level of PPE. But, you know, it's, it's what we see and it's what happens sometimes. And it just occurred to me that even though I'm able to say, you know, I don't think we should be wearing the highest level PPE in certain areas, that possibly the anxiety and the, and the, first-hand experience of knowing what can happen in those arenas, which those nurses and doctors have, maybe that needs to be entered in into how much resources we allocate to those areas, just because the anxiety is probably going to cost us more than the PPE will. And so I, I walked away from that conversation with the med staff this past week and that experience in the ER 
with a completely different viewpoint on how I think these kind of decisions need to be made about these different care areas. And maybe we need to start addressing as we allocate these resources and, and start mandating what level of protection different departments have, maybe we need to take in the potential anxiety and stress of working in that kind of unpredictable re area of the hospital as one of their decision factors for whether or not they get full level PPE for every shift. So I, I really have learned a lot this week, particularly about um, decisions make decision making that we're doing and how it might have unseen repercussions in terms of the cost it can have in terms of staff, the health of our staff, and our overall ability to sustain this marathon of a pandemic in the long run. So celebrations, wanting to get back to work, and the concerns and the, the nuances of how we're making these decisions, um, we maybe need to start talking about about how to do it a little bit differently as we move forward in this unchartered territory. So that's all I got. Oh, oh, there was one more thing. So the the other part of getting back to work is that we've had a moratorium on our students and our trainees to a certain level, and um, that's another thing that at least those of us in departments that do education we're really concerned that. Um, that those doors get to be open sooner than later because they have been in other institutions in the Bay Area. And so we're really hoping that we can get those those folks back in because those are our recruits and they, they measure the quality of the residents we get next year. So that was the other part of, of us in our reentry decision-making is that we really hope we can get some of the younger learners back into Highland because they get here and they love it and they want to be residents. And some of, some of them want to be on faculty later on. So... Um, that would be the other part of, of the reentry that I would want to you know, put out there. So that's really all I got. Thank you. That's really helpful. I've jotted down a few things that you said in terms of um, for our COVID task force as well, because we're already taking up some of the topics about sort of the reentry and how we're wanting to do that, obviously in the most responsible and cautious way. And um, while the finances are obviously a huge consideration, not wanting that to be the primary driver and just really kind of um, in some ways bracing ourselves for, um, I think if I'm not mistaken, we have more, more COVID patients in the ICU right now than we've had uh, so far. So the, the objective indications aren't necessarily telling us to fling the doors open um, yet we know that this is the this is the conversation that we're, we're having and needing to have. Um, I I also really appreciate what you said about sort of the nuanced decision making and about and and some of it is about PPE and you know I, I think we also can't rest with that either and assume that we're just going to have it's going to be a, a ubiquitous or available just because we've had a little breather or a sigh of relief. Uh, and it's not so scarce, um, but yet we don't know how long we're in this for, and what. And so some of it is uh, is an availability issue, I'm sure. But I, I wanted to just sort of a little bit lift up, and I know Kinkini will, uh, Trustee Banerjee will appreciate this because it's something we've been raising on the COVID task force as well as around the behavioral health impacts of this and I think of this pandemic. And I think we've talked about it mostly in terms of our community and our patient population. But I want to center 
uh, burnout of our providers and our frontline workers and our physicians. And so I've sort of jotted that down as something to add to our conversation. Um, and then lastly, I think your point on um, the students and the trainees is well taken. We're going to have a lot of our pipeline that we rely on interrupted at this point because a lot of folks are not able to get their clinical hours and things like that. Um, and so I think thinking about how, how they get reintroduced um, as we're looking at, um, at, at resuming some services is also really important. So thank you so much. That was really um, excellent. Thank you. Um, any questions for Dr. Ballard? I had one observation and a question, Dr. Bullard. One is that I've been so fortunate to be able to visit some of the hospitals and speak with the nurses and the staff or clinical, non-clinical staff, and to be able to convey our appreciation for them. And to a T when we ask, like, what keeps you up at night, what worries, and just the fact that they are the stress of being in this environment and taking it home to their loved ones like that is so key and so you can see they're working hard they're dedicated and this added thing of having to feel like they might be taking something home to their loved ones too so um we really just have to show so you know really such gratitude for the work that the frontline folks are doing. Um, secondly, is with the kind of um, staffing that we have right now with many regulars on family leave, like, is that something that you all are concerned about as we do re entry? You went to mute. Sorry. Um, I was saying with the, with the uh, number of our regular staff on the, you know, uh, family leave right now, how do you all feel about um, the capacity uh, to be able to take on uh, some of the elective work with a lot of travelers and registry, I guess? Well, I guess that, you know, the history of being here for 16 years is that there have been times in the operating room when there were more travelers than there were standard staff. So... From a, from a system standpoint, we have gone through periods of time in the past two decades where, you know, having a lot of travelers was just standard fare. We, that's the way we made it. And so I think from that standpoint, since most of the people who are doing, who would be doing the reentry surgery from a, from a departmental standpoint, and just from the history of our, our group of OR staff, and how they work together so well with travelers. Um, I don't think that will make as big of an impact as it might at another place where there's a core group of, of hired staff that makes the place run and then travelers come in. You know, I think the, the group that's here is so used to bringing in somebody from the outside, training them, we basically fall in love with them and then cry when they leave. That's, that's how that OR works. Um, try to have, you know, a nice little potluck every time some one of them goes to a different facility. So I, I think it won't really impact the OR particularly because of that history and that culture. Um, we do have, a, you know, a, a tremendous number of nurses who have been here forever and who are the, the core and heart and soul of this place. Um, 
but for the most part, I think that they're they're really welcoming and they're excellent at, at emergency training. So even if you're talking ICU or, or ER, I think the the travelers and, and the you know the people being out on FMLA, um, I don't think from a system standpoint, it's just a matter of making sure we have the staff as we roll back into the OR. I don't think it's who the staff are and whether they're going to be able to do the work. It's a matter of just planning ahead to know, okay, we're going to go back up by 25%. Let's project how many nurses we need that day and make sure we have them. And they can be travelers. I don't think it's going to affect quality or outcomes. That's, that's the way we've been in the past. Right. Thank you. That's good to know. Other questions for Dr. Ballard? So, uh, hi, this is Taft Fouquet. Thank you for that discussion. And follow-up to the QPSC where we... We're having a discussion again uh, that we're trying to build that interface between finance and quality, you know, monetizing what quality is. And uh, a couple of things that Dr. Ballard brought up. Number one, I, I think the burnout, uh, which was already high, has only been pushed beyond uh, uh, beyond what, what it was previously. Uh, I've heard the term PTSD, pre-traumatic stress disorder, been, been thrown around. And I know anecdotally I have a number of friends around the nation who said they've, they're done with medicine now. And, and, and that, that is something that I think we as an organization need to think about because as we monetize losses of physicians, uh, I, I think there's some metrics. Uh, Kim Miranda may be able to have some follow-up on this, but uh, I, I've heard that the, the cost of losing a doctor and recruiting another doctor is almost two times the cost of that doctor. So it allows us to sort of monetize some of that quality and I, I say we as trustees and we as senior leaders in the organization need to be pathologically attentive to, to that concept of empathy in this situation. Uh, uh, we have people who've been afraid now for their lives for two months uh, or three months in a situation they've never previously been in. So I, I submit that to all of us to be more empathetic to one another. With regard to the, the question of, of of travelers. I think every unit's a little bit different on how we discuss this, but I do like to quote a, 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 a quality fact, which is from another industry. An analysis of uh, plane wrecks, plane, plane crashes, found that about 70% of plane crashes are first-time teams together. Are first-time teams together. So important for us to realize as, as we talk about uh, having a stable staff, um, and, and, and how that impacts our quality. And, and again, I think our CFO will appreciate that, uh, as we had in our prior discussion in QPSC, we're trying to, we, we now need to move to the phase where we need to try to monetize what quality is. And I think all the things that, that Dr. Ballard was bringing out, uh, uh, pay heed to that. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. All right. It looks like our public speaker may be ready now. Um, speaker, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I was in the waiting room earlier. Sorry about that. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to me. Um, I know you're all dealing with COVID right now, and um, I wanted to speak to you today, not to distract from that, but to talk about um John George Psychiatric and um, my experience there a few months ago um, and uh, to highlight people who are especially vulnerable to 
to COVID within the Alameda Health System. Um, so I hope it doesn't distract too much from the current crisis. I know I'm completely uh, aware of all the work you all are doing, so thank you for that. Um, I was a patient at John George on 5150 Hold in PGS a few months ago. Um, I don't know what that music is. Um, I'm calling in today without video um, and, and just using a generic name because I actually work in an adjacent field to a lot of you. I think I've actually met some of you, and um, this is just sort of hard for me to talk about. So um, uh, thank you for letting me still talk um, without video and everything, and I think I've even met some of you professionally. Um, but I wanted to talk about the conditions that John George, my experience there, and, and the experience of others I observed. Um, I've struggled with mental health for a long time. I was taken there for suicidal ideation, um, but unfortunately, my experience there was was very traumatic, and um, I think it couldn't have made it worse. Um, as, as you might know, all genders sleep and eat in a huge room together on the floor. Um, I was hit on and harassed uh, by people, and, and I've talked to others, and they've experienced a lot worse there. Um, folks bang on the doors and scream through the night, and, and people are in withdrawal, and, and they're throwing up. Um, and as soon as I was as soon as I arrived, I, I was prescribed Ativan, which is like a benzo drug that I had never taken before. Um, and it's sort of like pushed on people to take it, to tell you to, that it'll help you calm down and go to sleep. Um, no one will, can tell you how long it'll be before you see a psychiatrist or counselor. There's no list or order. Um, I was there for 40 hours, and I was at the hospital for 22 hours before that. Um, then the psychiatrist talked to me for five minutes and told me I could leave. Um, I didn't get some of my belongings back, and I tried to talk to patients' rights advocates for help. Um, they helped me submit a lost property claim, but it was denied. Um, and when I called, they couldn't give me a reason. I'm not telling you these stories because my situation was especially bad. I think it was probably better than others. I have higher education. I have a lot of privilege compared to others that were at PES. Um, I am more just saying this because um, I've just saw so many bad things happen there. And if, I don't know if you've seen the reviews of John George on Yelp or on Google, but um, I've seen so many similar themes. I've actually been reaching out to people um, to talk to them through uh, those different avenues, and, and one of the most concerning themes I've seen is how the quality of services at John George actually, like, discourages people from reaching out and seeking help because they just don't want to go there at all, um, and I, I feel the same way. I would just never, ever want to end up there again. Um, I know John George has limited resources and staffing, and um, I just wanted to share my experience to say that, that um it should, I, I think there are some things that can be done to make it a more safe and healing place. Um, so uh, thank you for, for listening. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Okay. So um, with that, we'll move to Dr. Ingenio for um, the medical staff report for San Leandro Hospital. 
Dr. Engineer. While he's coming online, I just do want to say one more word about what we just heard. I wanted to say thank you for the courage to come forward because that was really difficult. And I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Is Dr. Engineer with us today? Not seeing on the list. I didn't see him on the list. Yeah. Unless he's one of the unidentified phone numbers. Right. Uh, so he was just uh, text me uh, that uh, he was out and trying to get in. I sent a message to Mike to see if we can get him in. Okay. Why don't we go to Dr. Marzuk and then come back to Dr. Ingenio. Dr. Marzuk, are you with us? Yes, I am. Are, am I, uh, can people hear me? Yes. Okay, I didn't know if I was still on mute. Uh, uh, yes, uh, I uh, I think that uh, obviously the the COVID uh, uh, preparation and and all that has been all consuming for the last two or three months. Unfortunately, uh, we it's at a wall right now. Uh, and uh, uh, so one thing that's been on the back burner on uh, page 22 of uh, the board report is primarily the issue of uh, our neurology coverage uh, for, uh, for Alameda Hospital in particular, which uh, will obviously focuses on the whole health system as a whole. Uh, we only have one uh, neurologist uh, for our certified uh, stroke center uh, and uh, she's been getting coverage from Eden and UCSF fellows. Obviously uh, she's no longer available purely on weekends and has the coverage on weekends uh, and uh, obviously needs coverage on other days. Uh, um, what uh, it uh, it uh, portrays is is that uh, that's going to be something that's uh, going to be uh, sustainable, particularly uh, on a local level, if not a system level. And I know that uh, uh, Dr. Turner Bene and Dr. Jamal Dean are working on a system-wide approach. Uh, to have teleneurology uh, for the entire system, which will include uh, not only the stroke coverage, uh, but, uh, but neurology consultation uh, at the, all the uh, institutions. And, uh, and uh, hopefully that will uh, alleviate uh, this, uh, uh, this issue in the long term. That's uh, been in the back burner. Uh, that's the end of my report. Are there any questions? Dr. Morsi, I noticed in the report it, said, it mentioned about other neurologists not being stroke certified, and forgive my ignorance, but what does that entail? How difficult is that to do or, or find? Uh, uh, I would have to uh, uh, defer to to 
with a special, uh, I think, uh, uh, ability to to uh, actually uh, read some of the uh, the radiological and uh, know uh, the time parameters involved. I'm I'm not exactly sure of the specifications for primarily stroke certification. Okay. Yes, I know that neurology capacity has been been troubling for quite some time. Just I know that from just being in the community and just access there. And I'm just curious about, yeah, about if that is a limiting factor, if teleradiology or other um, other kind of um, technology might be able to assist with that. So um, that seems like maybe an area for follow-up, um, understanding that, yes, everything is on the back burner, it seems, behind yeah. COVID. This is obviously a longstanding concern that um, affects, I think, countywide access. Sure. Do others have questions? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I know that Jamal and Tona Bene have uh, actually formulated uh, a group to address this issue for the long term. Yes. Yeah, hi, this is Felicia Tornabeni. I am working closely with Dr. Jamaladi, Dr. Cahill, Dr. Baden, um, and others. Dr. Cahill and I have been working on this for um, on and off for quite a number of months now, and uh, the idea of, of Teleneuro was recently approved in the IT subcommittee of our Clinical Practice Council, and it will be moving through our governance process in order to be uh, prioritized. We need to make sure we look at all items, including, um, you know, everything from uh, privileging credentialing to compliance and documentation and billing. And uh, Dr. Cahill has been talking with a number of companies for uh, quite a few months and has one in mind. And, and uh, we'd like to move that forward as quickly as we can. Thank you. Any questions for Dr. Marzu, Dr. Trinabene? Okay. Daniel with us now? I am. I'm back in. Sorry about that. I got kicked out for a while. I apologize. Sorry about that. Great. Go right ahead. No, no problem. So, uh, a brief report from San Leandro. Um, our uh, leadership committee met about two weeks ago, and um, uh, a couple of updates, which you probably heard. The, uh, the uh, COVID testing tent is up and running in the back, but the uh, Usage has actually still been fairly low. I think it's only for symptomatic patients referred by people from the community, and hopefully that will ramp up shortly. The um, um, as far as the individual sections, the emergency department uh, volume is up, but not overwhelming. The uh, director has had some assistance, and so things are working more smoothly there. And uh, there are still some uh, delays for transfers from fifty one fifties to John. George, but those are um, manageable at the moment since the volumes are a little low. Um, the recent uh, ICU transition to the group at Highland has uh, proved to be quite good. The physicians are happy, and, and I think the staff is happy with the, with the new group, and that's working out well. Um, and they're working on some collaboration with the emergency doctors for codes and other emergency services for inpatients at the time. Um, 
the uh, elective cases are still very low, and hopefully we can start ramping up semi-elective or urgent but not emergent cases. Um, uh, I think the staff's willing and available to do that. The main issue, I think, and hopefully this will be resolved shortly, is the screening. You know, there's a, a direction to have a COVID testing on everybody um, prior to the uh, um, any operative procedure within probably 47 days, and that that testing is not available. Even at the tent, apparently that's not available. We can't refer the patients there. Um, the new uh, vice president of patient services, uh, Glorinda Pastorius, has started. Uh, and apparently I understand there's also a new operating room manager that will start, I believe, on June 1st. Um, and, uh, you know, we await the full repeat joint commission survey. And that would conclude my items from San Leandro. Thank you. I appreciate um, that report and definitely want to make sure that we circle back on the issue of um, as we start to resume some services in particular and as testing capacity increases, how are we sort of matching up that resource with that need um, for, for our own patients um, and then maybe one day community-wide as well. Um, any trustees have questions for Dr. Ingenio? I was, this is uh, Kinkini, I was there on Saturday and um, sometime in the morning and there were three um, patients with mental health issues that came in at the same time. So just just that, you know, those are the kind of things that folks um, have to deal with. The 5150. Yeah. Dr. Ingenue, this is Taft Bouquet. Um, can you talk to me about uh, how you guys are receiving messaging about the, the, the restoration plan? Uh, at San Leandro, because I know it's a it's a, a centerpiece of dialogue and activity um, uh, here at Highland. Can you give your perspectives on that same discussion at San Leandro? Well, other, other than uh, I mean, my communications at the meeting with Greg, who is a bit frustrated as well I, I, in terms of not having the appropriate testing um, available to do the patient selectively. Um, that's, that's really it. I, I'm not sure the rest of the staff is that well versed on what the plan is, um, there quite yet. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. My communications with Greg at the moment. Doc, Dr. Victorino, I'm sorry, the chief of surgery. Yeah, of course. I think we all know that uh, COVID testing is the gate is the gating procedure necessary to move towards elective, and I I, I know uh, I know energies have been put into it. I also know that there's a tent at San Leandro. Volume hasn't been where we wanted it, so uh, I'll, I'll ask uh, the staff to circle back to you through either through Dr. Victorino or otherwise about the availability of that tent and how ordering is done because that that is again our gating procedure to. To, to opening up back elective. Well, he's asked for that, from what I understood, because we both immediately said, well, that's a simple procedure. We can just send the patients through the tent. since There's very low utility of that at the moment, right? Yeah. Uh, now, but apparently that's not an option um, for us to either of us at this point. Huh. Sorry, can, I, can you guys hear me? Yes. 
Okay, um, uh, so um, just to kind of clarify the process and Dr. Uh, Tornabene or others can chime in as well. Um, we have, a, again, a set of priority groups who are uh, slated for the expanded testing and the second group, I believe, is a uh, pre-procedural testing group. So that, that group is, that capacity is there and ready and available for that group. What's not done yet is the plan. So the plan actually that you're referring to is, uh, as Dr. Biquette is aware, a plan that is a, that is a collective engagement between the oversight group that's actually looking at this across the system for all the different areas and the specific areas that are developing their plan. So the approach has been that the, the areas, so in this case, perioperative, develops the plan they know better what would be a manageable, sustainable thing as they look at their resources, their demands for the patients, uh, staffing, and what have you, uh, for then ramping services back up while we keep an eye on both system capabilities as well as what's happening in the broader market. Um, uh, Dr. Victorino actually submitted uh, his plan first, uh, which we very much appreciated. And uh, there's been some early feedback provided to him about uh, the robustness of that plan in order to actually make a informed uh, and collective decision around the ability to move forward. So it's not just about the testing. The capacity actually is there, and that was the reason why we proceeded with expanding it to uh, that resource before we got these plans so that once the plans were approved, uh, it was ready to go. The, the, the rate limiter at this point is the plan itself. It's not uh, robust enough to be able to support with full fidelity that we won't end up uh, either running into the same issues we had before or new issues as we are anticipating them. So uh, it is a little bit of a, uh, I should say admittedly, I take a little bit off. It's a, it's a complex process and it's designed to be that way so that we can uh, extract the collective wisdom of the folks who are leading the effort at the individual discipline level or the site level with that of the leadership and be very careful and thoughtful about ramping back up uh, and that the priorities are both safety and I would say first and foremost safety of everybody uh, both the patients and the providers and then the fiscal imperatives for the organization so we're not um, I would I, I would I would be remiss if I said that, you know, the financial pressures, which we're all feeling, is not the driver for ramping the services back up. The driver is, can we safely provide the care for the people who need it? Do we have the adequate PPE? Do we have all the other elements of it? And that is a piece that really requires a local uh, leadership's engagement in that thoughtful, multi-layer uh, uh, consideration. So we're, we're working closely with them. As you know, we've had a couple of conference calls uh, with everybody and some individual which Torino gave some constructive and helpful feedback on how the process was working for him. And we've applied to him um, or uh, availed him, as we have with others, uh, and reminded them that there were some resources available to help them to go through that. So I, I believe that's underway now, and we're uh, looking forward to getting uh, that plan uh, from them so that then we can support them in supporting the patients and getting those uh, things back in place. Also being mindful of, if we get an onslaught, if our ICUs are overwhelmed, if we get a, uh, um, outbreaks in the community, our ability to scale back without just shutting things down again. That's what we don't want to do. Steve, I, I didn't totally understand everything you just said. Dalvecchio, are, are we um, 
did you say that we have the capacity to do as much testing as we need to? This is Felicia. I can speak to that if you'd like. So um, at, at San Leandro uh, total, we've only actually in our drive up done 18 specimen collections. We have um, much more, we have capacity uh, and we are ready to take more patients to support the plans once they're complete and approved. We are, uh, we did a walkthrough on another site uh, for the system that's here at Highland and we're about two weeks away probably from standing that one up. Uh, we um, plan to do that at the, the currently closed section of the top of the HCP garage. Um, our facilities and engineering and IT team are actually running power and data and that should be done at the end of next week. So um, we will have even more capacity and I'm partnering with um, other leaders throughout AHS to continue ramping up even more uh, because we know that we have to test, for example, our, um, our, and I'm working closely with Richard Espinoza on this, you know, our skilled nursing facility um, uh, patients and staff. Uh, so we have to keep ramping up, but we absolutely have capacity right now. And we're going to add more, and we have um, uh, the capacity likely sometime in June to actually do internal uh, testing of the, of the RT-PCR variety in our own lab once we get the reagent, though we're working closely with Dr. Ng um, on coordinating that. And, and my comments as uh, uh, speaking from a, a physician perspective and underlying this is, this is no simple endeavor. This, the, the complexities are extraordinary and they go from who orders the test, how do we execute it within seven days of said procedure because we know that timing is hard. How, what's the communication stream to get it to the patient? Where is the site that we do it? What do we do if it's positive? Who do we notify? How do we do contact tracing for that person? Is it the primary care physician's responsibility or is it the procedural's responsibility? Do either of those, are either of those teams resourced to handle that? And these are, these are some of the uh, uh, million questions which go beyond capacity. Capacity yeah, was just sort of the, again, the gateway to this. So great that we have capacity. And now we have to walk through the 300 steps that we need to do to do this well. So that's, that's the work that I'm confident is, is, is happening. And it's actually, unfortunately, bearing out even more questions about how layered this complexity is. And I, I agree with we shouldn't turn it on until it's built well because it could potentially be disastrous. Yeah, my two cents. But the turning on you're talking about, Dr. Bouquet, is 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 sort of resuming all of the services that have been put on hold, as opposed to, I mean, we can fling the doors open a bit more with respect to testing. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. This is this is testing. This, we're talking about testing as a gateway to elective procedures. Right. So, so what I'm hearing is that really the plan is much, much bigger than the ability to test. In some ways, the test is the easy part. It's the everything yeah. else. It's yeah. actually the That's easiest right. part. The actual getting the test is the easiest part of the whole gig, in my opinion. Well, that's good news because that wasn't the case a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that true. Yeah, that's not the message that we're getting out in public about testing. I mean, the city of Oakland is opening testing sites because there's been a huge dearth. There's been a lack of testing. And then we were told that testing and tracing is the key to our future. And so um, I guess part of why I asked the question is I'm wondering if this board, you know, like what can we actually do other than hear our staff report out on? 
the issue. And I think what we can do is, is be lobbying as, as a board for expansion of testing and, and, and greater access to testing. But if you're saying our testing capacity is fine, then, then maybe we don't need to be lobbying for that. But it, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with what I'm hearing in the general public domain. Well, Joe, uh, we just haven't taken what we've opened up. We haven't really taken it for a spin yet. Uh, uh, and I'll let Felicia uh, comment on this is that St. Leandro tent is there. And they, mm-hmm. Felicia, what's the count that they've done? Eight. 18 and one positive out of those 18. Right. So, and they're there 10 to two, right? Correct. So, so we haven't really taken that for a spin yet. So, mm-hmm. but there's capacity in current state right now. Yeah. No, uh, how many tests have we done out of roots in the last week? <laughs> About 1,300 or so. Um, You know, I've thought a lot about this, and it is one of my areas of, you know, sort of just uh, just being perplexed, right, and really trying to track on sort of how how we as a public hospital system are really thinking about this, because I think our first responsibility, as I understand it and have understood it, is, you know, we have to prioritize a very scarce resource, whether it was PPE or whether it was tests, or, you know, this has been just the, a scarcity situation from the beginning, sadly and tragically, and like not, you know, not like the rest of the country. Um, and and now that we're sort of, it's opening up a bit, I, I know that, you know, we're still prioritizing the sickest people, right? So we gotta, we gotta think about our inpatients first. We gotta think about the ICU, we gotta think about the ER, we gotta think about places where our staff is exposed. And so, and then, so as we, you know, I mean, one of the areas that was concerning me as everyone I think knows is like turning away symptomatic patients without getting tested because that's just a missed opportunity and that was happening. And so even as, even in this conversation, I'm saying I'm more worried about testing symptomatic patients in an outpatient setting than I am about getting a negative in preparation for an elective procedure um, you know, if, if that's how we're having to do it. I mean, if we're saying we have capacity to do all of the above, great. Then, then like I think has been said in a couple of ways here, um, there's a lot of other factors as to whether we can open up for elective procedures. But I think, um, you know, the, it's, it's very hard in a, in a pandemic situation. I'm learning to sort of balance, like, what, if, what are our responsibility to our patients? And then how are we contributing to the overall picture of community-level understanding um, an impact, right? And, um, and, and this is where, you know, this is one of the things that I think will be important even in our conversation tomorrow about how do we make sure that there is the maximum amount of alignment between what we know is the public health landscape <laughs> and our capacity and our resources and our gaps and, and what it is that, uh, that is expected and, and possible for our healthcare delivery system to execute. Um, so it's a really challenging balancing act that I feel like has been evolving by the day. Um, and it, and it, I, you know, I don't know if we, if, if Dovecchio or Dr. Tonabeni or anybody has a sense of is our capa- is capacity for testing just no longer a problem? Are we just not worried? Are we still feeling like we have to prioritize? No. Like, are they going to run out of swabs tomorrow or reagent next week? I mean, we've experienced these things along the way already. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll share some uh, context here and then uh, obviously invite uh, Dr. Chonabini or others to, to contribute. So, so I think uh, we've, we've, we view capacity in two contexts. One is the availability of the testing itself, so the, the, the resources, the test, uh, the swabs, the reagents and all of that. And then it's the uh, capacity of the turnaround for the results, right? And when you are in an acute provider context, you have uh, gradients of um, 
of, of acuity of patients uh, that you need to have more timely response for. So if you're in the community and you are asymptomatic or you're in the community and you're symptomatic but not sick enough to be admitted to a hospital, uh, having a test, which I think for anybody, having a test, you want the results as soon as you can. Uh, but having a test and being able to uh, go home and sequester or in some other way um, um, uh, isolate yourself but not need other clinical services um, uh, does not engage then at least uh, the healthcare delivery system in such a way that you have to be concerned about that. So for us, uh, we had at the early stages, those issues of capacity, some of them were exactly what you were just talking about. It was, you know, you run out of uh, swabs, you run out of reagents and those things. Then it became the turnaround times. You have those things, but then you could get the results in 24 hours, which was very helpful for uh, preserving PPE because if you're in an inpatient setting and you get a test, then from that point forward, everybody's treating you like you're going to be a positive uh, until uh, proven otherwise. So when you have those competing dynamics in an inpatient setting, you need a faster turnaround of that result as quickly as you can get it so that you can uh, appropriately disposition or determine how to care for that individual as safely as possible. So when we are, um, we have, we were long in a situation where we weren't expanding the the population of people that we were testing because when our tests went in to that queue, we were being prioritized to get the faster turnaround because of the other competing uh, demands. Once that became less of an issue, then all of a sudden, actually even swabs and other things, we were, we were, we were, uh, flush with them. We have a lot of uh, testing collection uh, capability. Uh, what what still is, uh, to varying degrees of challenge, is the turnaround time. So when we still submit all those tests, uh, we're still wanting a 24 to 36-hour turnaround time, particularly for the inpatients. Outpatient side, again, a little bit different. And we have to have a way of segregating that piece or, or at least in a scalable way using the place where we can get a fast result and then um, um, directing the ones where we don't need as fast a result to other channels. So that's been the calibration that we've been doing. And I think now we are gradually sort of opening up our ability to use all those other means and that capacity we have, but still trying to balance the, if you're in the ICU, if you're in a negative pressure room, inpatient setting, if you're in ED, how do we make sure that your result gets back to us and to you faster than somebody driving up or, or walking up or in the case of what we're just talking about, a pre-procedural uh, situation where uh, we are doing this two, two days, three days before a, a, um, a, um, uh, uh, procedure or a, an operation may occur. Then at this juncture, so so then it's a it's a mixed question. Yes, there's a lot of testing available. The turnaround time is still not great. Yes, there are a lot more people who need to be tested than even the sites I think that are available because we're not. The county wants to get up to I think one thirty one hundred tests per day, and they're about a third of the way there now. They're not yeah. actually doing that many tests uh, yet. Yet what I hear is there are some sites, and ours is one of them, where we're confounded with actually getting uh, people in who need the test. So we opened up last week to ACE, or I'm sorry, symptomatic uh, ambulatory patients who are within AHS. So that's already, you hear all the parameters there. And over this week, we've gotten 18 of those individuals. We don't have uh, necessarily, we're co uh, confirming this, but what I don't appreciate is that we have a large backlog of people who fall in that category. What we may have, quite honestly, is a lot of asymptomatic ambulatory patients who haven't been tested, and we need to 
kick the door open even wider and say, we need to take all these individuals. And I think we're going to gradually get to that point. Sadly, we should be there already. Uh, but then there's a competing uh, pieces there. The thing that Dr. Turner Bennett just mentioned is, uh, in June, we are very hopeful that we will have the lab capabilities ourselves to run our own tests. And at that point, we get a very significant increase in the turn, like the ability to get tests very rapidly. And then we will be able to, uh, whether it's frontline uh, um, um, uh, at-risk providers or the patients that we're um, uh, doing or our outreach, which we're working on now to skilled nursing facilities outside of AHS, get very quick turnaround for those things because we have greater control over the entirety of the process. So it is a mixed question. I don't I want um, you trustees to walk away with the notion that we're saying, hey, testing is available and that's not an issue. It, that is like only half the story is to turn around time. And it's actually the, the, the categories of individuals that we're actually offering the testing to at this point. Can I ask what our turnaround time will look like when you can verify on site? Um, oh, you want to, Felicia, you probably know this better than I do. Oh, just, uh, we understand it'll be less than 24 hours um, and likely less than, possibly less than 12. And that's, that's what, can you say for the, yeah. And can you say for the, um, the um, uh, amount of tests that we could do in less than 24 hours? Uh, Valerie has told me that it can be a thousand a day. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I have to say though, because this is making me nervous in the community that people are using these tests to make all kinds of decisions that <laughs> I don't think we've all come out and said, yes, you can, yes, you can open up your business if everyone had a negative test. Well, it might be positive tomorrow. And I guess um, when I'm hearing sort of this whole decision around, okay, seven days before the procedure, you were negative, but then you contracted it four days before the procedure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think these are all nuances that we need to wrap our arms around as testing capacity opens up. Um, how that drives decision-making, I think, really needs to be figured out. I know we're all getting... Uh, we're all experiencing a lot of decision fatigue, like in medicine right now, because we're making a lot of decisions every five minutes without enough information at all. Yeah. Um, it's pretty exhausting. Um, but this, for me, is just one of those, I mean, this is one of those areas. And that is, to your point, Dr. Abelard, that's the that's the local element of the uh, planning that we have uh, tried to structure, that we're looking to discipline-based um uh, leadership to to tell us. So if you're getting particularly like a dental procedure, a GI procedure, an operative procedure, we don't want to mandate, okay, you're, you get the test seven days before. Your, your relative um, professional societies have promulgated some uh, best practice recommendations that may say 72 hours before the procedure and then you do a symptom check right before and if something has happened or, or it's 48 hours, whatever that is, we have to be flexible enough in all the areas to say, okay, now we know can we accommodate that? Or can we accommodate it for, say, two more patients per day per OR, where we're not overwhelming the system, but we can say we can do that degree, but we have to actually plan all of that out. So now what's the PPE? How many staff do we need? What all do they need? Like, it becomes very complex. So just through the lens of that part of it, it's but a small part. And we're saying the rate limiter for that part is not the testing. Although it's right, okay. it's sort of frustrating to them now, which I totally appreciate. It's like, well, why don't you just let us test the patients? It's like, but what's the plan? So we're right to test the patients, but that part needs a plan. Now, now, meanwhile, we're expanding testing and we're looking at these other populations that don't have those complexities. It's just we need to test them. 
So, so it's kind of multiple things happening at once, and and it is frustrating. I would say to everybody, and it's fatiguing, as you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, but um, everybody's really pushing as hard as they can. They're trying. Okay. I don't want to add a clarification. I'm oh, sorry. It just, just quickly, is can everyone who's symptomatic who comes to our clinics get tested today? Yes. Yes. If a patient calls and they're symptomatic, they can get a test. If they walk into an ED, they can get a test. If they show up for a clinic and they're symptomatic, they can get a test. Uh, so, so we can say that definitively right now. And I, I just heard Dr. Turner say that. And our staff. And yeah, that was my question. Fantastic. Uh-huh. All right, so all symptomatic staff um, can absolutely get tested at our urgent care. Okay. So I just want to add one other um, layer to this. I'm anticipating that the answer to this is yes, that we are going to keep our testing protocols um, and and testing sites in place through the fall when people perceive that there might be a second uh, round of infections. Um, I mean, that's what people are talking about now that, you know, there's this lull, but as people start to get back into work environments and and become pretty sloppy about social distancing, we'll see more. So I hope we're going to keep that open. The second part of it is, are we at all anticipating the need to test for antibodies or is the same test used for both? Because one concern I have is I think in the new normal, we may be um, looking at a lot of our patients who if they want to go back to work or if they want to do certain things, they'll have to prove that they have the antibody. And that's another dimension of this pandemic. You know, it's down the road, but I can just see that our folks are going to have a hard time paying for that or getting that or accessing the antibody test. I think you can go to Palo Alto right now and already do it, but our community is not going to have that um, wherewithal. So what are we thinking about that? The, the, we have not been offering the, the antibodies primarily out of a clinical concern about the accuracy of what a positive means. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Ng is pretty, uh, our, our, our chair of pathology is uh, pretty, um, um, I, I, I get a very passionate message from her. Like uh, uh, the 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 validity and the clinical uh, uh, um, and, 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 and relevancy of the antibody test. Yeah, so, you, yeah. you can't have a false positive rate of a third. And, yes. Right. Yeah. Well, and 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 follow because I have these discussions with Doctor Ying, probably Doctor Tornabeni more than me, but it, it, it underlies the complexity. Do antibodies are they the, are they neutralizing antibodies? Do they actually confer immunity? Are they actually there's crossover antibodies between the other. Uh, uh, seasonal coronaviruses. So does that doesn't mean anything. So just as Dr. Torrenbanning said, we actually, the royal we, don't know what they mean. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a great question, but uh, the, the science is going to still have to evolve, in my opinion. So what about my first question, though? We're keeping these open until further notice. I No, we're not. I'm, I'm joking. Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, that was a bad joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think testing is here to stay, uh, you know, for the for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, even just things um, like uh, our, you know, John George population, we need to look at that. We had a, a even in a 
day with some partners around discharge planning. Um, and so that the need and the applications of the testing are ever expanding and, and we're constantly now keeping our eyes on that. Thank you. I was gonna ask about John George in particular because we had two homeless shelters yeah. test positive uh, last night. Um, you know, and it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty hard to, to mobilize to respond to that. I'll say that. Yes, I, our, our Dr. Siddhartha and I um, feel pretty strongly about um, getting to a place of universal testing at John George, but that the, the, what we really need is the more rapid turnaround time of mm -hmm. our internal tests. That makes sense. Screening, yeah. uh, screening uh, with a three or four day turnaround uh, will not be useful for John George yet, but we're almost there. Great to hear. Thanks for this discussion. Any other trustees, questions, thoughts? Okay, great. All right, moving us into the committee reports. Um, Dr. Bouquet, keep your seat. Sure. Uh, at the uh, April 23rd meeting, we did our standard discussions. We had a long discussion around credentialing policies and procedures. There was actually a lot of our discussion was around the disaster privileging. So uh, kudos to the medical staff office who got up a lot of disaster privileging. Uh, and this would allow people to do to work outside what they had originally been privileged for. So, you know, uh, non-ICU doctors managing ventilators, people having admitting privileges and the like. Uh, fortunately, uh, there has not been such a surge, but we are now from a credentialing point of view, at least positioned to turn that on should we need it. So happy to report on that. In our reading club, uh, we talked about, we uh, did a number of articles of, from getting the board on board. So all board members should have a copy of this book. It's, uh, it's uh, talks us about what our board needs to know about quality and patient safety. Uh, that's in your packet. Some of these elements will continue to have discussion around, including on Saturday morning. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good book, and it's not a hard read. Um, third, we heard from the ambulatory SBU. Dr. Barbaria gave a presentation around normal uh, operations around SBU, and we were hearing about move to telehealth and all this thing uh, work around uh, around COVID, which was important. We had a particularly deep dive into a discussion about. Uh, the uh, intensive outpatient program, the IOP, and what we what we did agree on is is that we are going to keep this as a regular tracking item in QPSC. Uh, it's as everyone on this committee on this uh, board knows, IOP has been has been a, 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 a point of deep dialogue, is how I'll put it, over the past year, if not more. And um, it, it is my personal impression. I'll, I'll let. Trustee Hernandez or Trustee Shaquin chime in if they want, that, 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 that we seem to be on a path to respectful and thoughtful dialogue now, which will help us come to some decisions that we need to make. I think Trustee Shaquin brought up today, you know, we can't continue to have these discussions ad infinitum because there are, there are financial pressures which are being brought forth. And then Del Vecchio gave us a little bit of a highlight as to the state of current discussions with the county and contracting and stuff. And he reported to us on today, it's not from the, from the April, that he's, he's pretty pleased with the direction it's going and then we'll receive an update at the next QPSC. That were, those were the key elements of last month's QPSC. Thank you for that. Any questions for Dr. Bouquet? 
Alrighty. Finance, Trustee Shaquin. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be brief if that's possible. <laughs> It'd say that uh, you know budgets or plans and uh, uh, your finances. Um, the healthier finances have something to do with how well you stick with your plan. And through March, um, we're within budget. That's a very optimistic silver lining approach to looking at our financial situation. Of course, everything changed uh, towards the end of March. Um, so since then is um, a whole different story. But the point being that we went through a very painful budget process last year, and we're actually performing generally within those um, guardrails, if you will, financial. So again, that's might be digging really hard for for good news, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it is. I, I think what it is. So the other two things I want to say is uh, kudos to staff, uh, finance staff in particular, for uh, continued improvement in revenue collection. Um, and there'll be more of a report from our CFO on that later. But that's real hard work. If you remember past reports, it's just uh, a, a lot of catching up. Uh, you know, going to uh, Epic really uh, created a situation where we had to uh, realign. And so we're making progress there. And I just want to call that out. Appreciate Kim's leadership on that, as well as her team's uh, involvement in making that happen. And finally, I'm just going to, I'm not going to say very much, but we all have got to be ready for an incredibly difficult budget conversation. <coughs> the numbers are, um, they didn't get better. Last year they got better from about this time after staff crunched and uh, sacrificed every little uh, penny in the couch. Um, that Those little tricks seem to be done. And we're kind of over those, and we're left with a pretty big gap uh, for next year's budget. Um, and I won't go into the specifics. So I'll leave that to staff, and I'm probably, probably that's coming tomorrow in detail. And then the other issue, of course, that is incredibly challenging for us is the net negative balance. And that um, it, more of that challenge is getting rolled over to next year. So the, the size of the um, <clears throat> deficit between the current threshold and where we need to go is has gotten larger. Uh, there is a conversation now that has been scheduled. Uh, and uh, let me think. I think it's uh, our president, so, uh, Trustee Peterson, and myself, uh, along with staff, We'll be meeting with the Auditor Controller and other Alameda County staff on Thursday to discuss that. Um, but that's also um, an incredible, uh, it's really a challenge um, because of de- recruitments mainly, uh, past payments that um, we have to make uh, have to make up for. Uh, we receive too much money basically in Medi-Cal funding if that's possible and we have to pay it back. Um, so that's my report. You forgot to mention your concerns about Measure A. Wouldn't be a meeting if you didn't do that. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a one-trick pony. Yeah, Measure A is clearly, uh, Kim and I had a conversation this afternoon about that, and, you know, it's pretty clear that that's going to be um, as bad as I uh, 
had nightmares about. So we're you know talking 20, 25 percent off of what uh, it is now. Now, if you remember, um, about one hundred twenty-five million of our budget uh, is from Measure A. So that's off by. 20, 25%. Um, I mean, we have this year, right? So that that's probably something under 10 million, which is not chump change. But next year, if the economy continues to perform poorly over the course of the year, which is really possible, then, you know, we, we could see 20, uh, 30 million um, off that, uh, off that assumption. Yeah, uh, Rebecca Gephardt actually gave me some numbers. They hired somebody uh, to take a look at it. And just to give you all the the magnitude, because it's pretty substantial, there's just as a baseline for the FY1819, it was $167.3 million total for Measure A. Um, this year, which, you know, is almost over, they think they're going to come in a total of 147.9, so just about 148. So that's 11.6 million reduction. And we're just talking a matter of a few months, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, they think clarify, for next year. If I could clarify real quickly, that, that 168 million is a total measure A. Yes. 75% of measure A dumps into uh, the Alameda Health System. Yes. That's about 8 million loss this year. And uh, and then they're saying that for next year, their estimate is 142.4 of that. Of course, 75% of that would come to us, but still that's even a bigger drop than in this year. And then they're saying that even in 22, it's still not going to recover. It's going to be 149. It's just going to come up a little bit. So um, uh, let's the the person that they contract with, she didn't get the name, is obviously thinking that we're going to be in a recessionary period for some time. And well, we're more that, fortunate than other counties because, you know, we have a huge population mass. And if we're, if people are ordering goods and it's getting delivered, and then the tax benefit comes here. Yep. So that's $20 million off next year. Yeah. My recollection is that after the 2008 recession, tax base fell around 26% and persisted for around two years. That needs to be confirmed, but that was my, I, I, I think I heard the San Leandro city manager report that out. That sounds right. So, yay. Replacing <laughs> ourselves, yes. How have we? Is there any? I don't know estimates or projections around sort of the county population because we were seeing a lot of a reduction in the number of people on Medi-Cal and utilizing the safety net, and now with the with the shutdown, surely there are people who used to have private insurance who are now going to be Medi-Cal eligible. Are we part of bigger conversations around that, and how do we anticipate that that would impact us? Obviously, there'll be a higher need for what we do um, and and uh, and maybe higher acuity and other things like that with uh, things having gone unattended to for periods of time and so forth. I'm just curious if those are conversations happening somewhere. I think Tangerine's trying to speak. 
<clears throat> Tangerine, were you wanting to weigh in on that? No, I'm sorry. I just got off another call and I just okay. joined this call. My apologies. No, no worries. Vecchio, I don't know if you have any, yeah. Uh, no, no, not a, not a lot of new intelligence here. I've, I've just been talking to my my uh, sort of uh, fellow uh, um, uh, safety net CEO uh, colleagues in the in the uh, in the county and uh, tracking on any um, um, census that they've been getting from the from the uh, health, uh, social services agency. And I haven't heard any new news in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I meant to ask yesterday, but um, the, the sense that we heard before was exactly what you just described, that there is a sense that, 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 that the um, number of Medi-Cal enrollees were starting to, or at least applications were starting to tick up. Um, but a sense of how you know, the magnitude of that, that was like the first two weeks, I think, of the unemployment figures coming in. And there was the, the magnitude of that, as I noted, and there was also a counterbalancing as uh, certain aid packages were coming in. Uh, some of those were things to extend either COBRA uh, benefits, or not like COBRA benefits, but um, uh, the ability for individuals who are losing their jobs to continue to afford their own uh, portion of the premiums or subsidies uh, for people to either uh, afford their continuation of their premiums or, or to get onto um, exchange programs. It wasn't, it wasn't clear how that would impact then the enrollees. So I don't have anything now, but uh, we are asking the question and uh, we're hopefully getting an answer around that. Uh, well, I actually, uh, I apologize. Um, now that I understand what you're talking about, I actually can add <laughs> to the conversation. We actually see it in our enrollment for the month of May uh, for Medi-Cal. Um, we uh, track the enrollment trends month to month. Uh, uh, Kim has seen our enrollment. Um, and so we'll see whether or not that uptick uh, in May will continue into uh, the subsequent months, and um, if it's uh, related to what I think we all envision, what the state is envisioning, which is an increase in uh, Medi-Cal uh, enrollment due to uh, unemployment uh, and the like. Is that relevant or completely off-base? Very relevant. Right on. <laughs> so, so I guess what we're saying is we're probably going to have an increased demand for our services, and we're going to have less money to do it. <laughs> yeah, our, our volume will increase, but the revenue that corresponds with that doesn't pay full fare. Right. Yeah. So I can make a few comments. That be appropriate? Of course. Okay. So for the month of March, we had an EBITDA loss of uh, 6.3 million. Um, and that was 4.7 worse than budget. Um, shelter in place happened mid-month on the 17th. We saw an immediate drop of charges of, um, which for the month was 12.6%. If I look at just from the date of the shelter in place, it dropped, uh, to 25 and then to 30 and then it is picking back up because we do have more folks in house. Um, we did receive our first uh, support from the CARES Act. We got $14 million of cash. Uh, we're recording that over three months. We, we just made a decision. Let's just divide it in three. It's $4.6 a month. Um, 
our expenses they were over uh, six million um, a lot of things going on there uh, we had a catch-up in our outside medical services for HPAC also for transportation of patients our quest lab was very high related to COVID we had some COVID related expenses but most of the invoices have been trailing in slowly uh, and we had our uh, we had higher claims for our employees on our um, self-insured uh, health plan. Um, in regard to cash, we had the best month we've had all year since Epic. Not only did the did the cash come in on the Epic side, which is great, and that's what we've been talking about. There's also a whole presentation in the deck uh, from Finance Committee on how we're doing with Epic stabilization, uh, but also on the legacy. We saw a big tick up in the legacy accounts. Um, so now our revenue is at 99.4% of what we've been reporting. Um, I think that's an important measure because if we don't get to that 100%, then we're at risk for an audit entry to reduce our net revenue. So this is really good news. And I want to add to this that our cash continues to come in. So I ha would have expected to start to see um, as a result of the lower volumes in late March that we would start to see lower cash. Um, have not seen that yet. Um, what else do I want to say? Oh, and then in regard to the cash flow, I did have to uh, worsen the projection um, in March based on what I knew at that time. Um, we had said in February we were not going to hit the NNB. In March, my March report, I said we still were not going to hit our NNB. However, um, I've gotten news since then that is going to help us, and we think now we might just scrape under the NNB limit at June 30. Um, the GME funding's been going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, now it's back in for June. Uh, we also got a um, money from the um, waiver, so the safety net care pool money was funded. Uh, for $11 million, and we expect to get that in June, and that I had no idea would be coming. And when you add that to our higher cash, we actually look like we will um, make the NNB on June 30. Uh, it'll be close. Thanks. Unfortunately, all this great stuff moved things into this year. But they took them out of next year. <laughs> so it's kind of a timing difference. Uh, that's the bad news part. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. That, that can we're cooking, kicking down the road is getting bigger. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're Thanks flattening all awesome. these curves, <laughs> prolonging the agony. <laughs> okay. Questions for Trustee Shaquin or Kim? Thank you both. All righty, so we're on to the consent agenda. Is there any discussion? Can I get a motion? Item D3, item D3, the seismic planning. Did we miss that one? Oh, sorry about that. Yes, we did. Well, I'll make, I'll make it really brief. We, uh, we had a meeting on May 13th. As you, as you recall, this is a, a joint uh, uh, group planning group that includes both members of the city of Alameda health board and uh, health care board and uh, several several of trustees 
uh, at our, we hadn't met in for a couple of months because of COVID-19 and uh, we uh, went over where, kind of recap where we were today. We have gone over the Kaufman Hall report uh, and there on the seismic requirements and we had a discussion with Radcliffe Architects uh, where they gave some estimates for what it would cost to do different rebuilding options. Uh, and then we uh, uh, talked about where we were on the seismic uh, requirements that are due for 2030. Uh, then uh, we spent a few minutes, uh, Louise led us in kind of giving us an update on uh, where we were with COVID-19 with respect to Alameda Hospital. And then we spent uh, a good amount of time doing a real quick review of the Wifley report and its impact on uh, on the health system. Uh, and then uh, we uh, agreed to uh, have a follow have a, have a follow up discussion at our next meeting where we're going to go over a, a joint report back to the board. Uh, and then we're going to uh, we're going to also as part of that report we're also going to submit a. Uh, that critical path with kind of options on what the next steps are. Uh, the plan is to submit it to both boards, both uh, both our board and the uh, district board. And so <clears throat> I think this will all be coming together in the next uh, 30 to 45 days. So that's, that's where we are. Thank you. Did, I'm sorry, could I ask, did you say that you'll be submitting a report in 30 to 45 days with a recommendation? Uh, yeah, get, get, uh, kind of a status report on where we are and uh, uh, what what the various options are. Yeah. Luis, did you want to add anything? I, I don't have anything else to add. Thank you. Okay. Ken, Ken did you do you want to add anything? Or? Uh, no, you covered it. No. It's uh, it, you know, it's uh, it's it, even though we're talking 30, you know, uh, our understanding is it could be a sort of seven-year process once we decide which direction we're going to go in. You know, between raising funds if that's the way we go and and actual construction, and there's a number of different options around construction, and uh, and then there's also discussions about what is the best direction to go in. So. Anyway, uh, uh, it'll be a it'll be a status report back to everyone. Okay. Thank you. Consent agenda. Motion to approve. Can I just ask one more question? Uh, sorry, Ross. So, do you feel that the the work you're doing with the Alameda Health District Board, this ad hoc committee, do you feel like we're we're uh, are we on the same page? Do we all, are we all working with the same set of facts now? I think so. I think so. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, that that was part of the plan. You know. Now, um, you know, I'm sure that different people are going to have different perspectives about what's the best way to move forward. And I, uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for the district, uh, but I I can tell you that uh, the feedback that I've gotten is that. The ED and the acute services are really important to them, and those are the 
those are the services that are most in question as part of this process. Okay. Thanks. Tracy, did you want to say anything? No, thank you. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it, it, these are going to be difficult decisions. And it's, do you have a sense of what uh, price point we're talking about on construction? Well, yeah, we were talking um, in the range, I believe, uh, a Ratcliffe of, uh, you know, a hundred could be a hundred over a hundred million dollars, 120 million. It just depends on kind of what direction we go in. One of, one of the challenges is if we were to uh, <clears throat> do it on the existing site, uh, that means we'd have to close a lot of services down for a period of time. Impact that that has. Uh, so... Yes, it, I think it could easily be over 100, 100 million, 120 million, depending on which you know which recommendation is decided upon. Did Kaufman look at the feasibility of a local campaign to raise that sort of money? No. Okay. Are, are you looking at, um, is the group looking at the, what it would take to change the, uh, the state rules around the, the timeline or around emergency rooms to, to allow for potentially creating an emergency room uh, or an urgent care facility that could meet the market need without rebuilding a $150 million building? We, we, we've lost over that at this point. Uh, at this point, what, we were, what we've been looking, that'll be one of the recommendations, obviously, but uh, what we've been looking at is if you went forward with uh, meeting the seismic plans for 2030, what are the options and what would that take? So, uh, you know, and, and it, we really haven't gotten it all into where the funding would come from and, you know, how, how viable it is. And that's I think the sooner we get to that point in 30 or 45 days with the recommendation, then it, the better. And then I think we need to engage our local legislative delegation again uh, yeah. about, about what potentially needs to be done at the state level so that we can meet whatever the, the, the recommendation is. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know if we'll be there with, within the next meeting, but certainly that's something we, we can strive for getting done in the next couple of months. I mean, I, I still personally think that we could join with other local hospital districts in lobbying the state to provide funding to meet the seismic requirements for 2030 through some sort of bond for safety net hospitals. Yeah. And for those who are not safety net, you know, or if, they, if a portion of what they do is safety net, then they could get a, that portion of the bond uh, money prorated. I, I really think we as a board and as a local delegation needed to, to see how we could join forces with a broader coalition to, to secure the long-term funding needed to meet, to meet that challenge. Agreed. Yeah. I think we would need to get some of our labor friends on board with this. I'm sure they would totally agree with us. Yeah. Well, it's more complicated than that, unfortunately. Well, I think, um, you know, this is also a, an area with our um, county partners at the Board of Supervisors to be thinking about 
jointly sort of um, advocating as well. Um, so those are, I think those are other areas of, of alignment to be talking about. Yes, and one of, one of the other areas that I, that there was a, a, a proposal suggested is uh, looking for um, vigorous needs assessment. Uh, you know, what, what, what is really the demand for services moving forward? You know, uh, right, right now the volume of the ED is pretty low and uh, it, uh, it is hard to justify perhaps building a new hospital, you know, building a new hospital without some increase in demand. Uh, but those are, those are things that uh, still need to be, still need to take place. So I think one of the things that I know that uh, staff were uh, suggesting is doing doing more of a needs assessment to just understand uh, what the need is. And in the report that was done by Kaufman Hall, one of the things that came back in their recommendations was pretty clear is that it doesn't look like it would be financially viable for Alameda Hospital to go on their, on their own. That it has to be, we have to look at it as some kind of collaboration, not some kind of as a collaboration. Yeah, I guess what I guess what's missing for me is, um, particularly given the system's financial health this coming year and the next couple couple of years, any any um, recommendations need to be tested for feasibility. Sure. We're just playing a game of, of you know chasing things that I mean that's costly to do that for everyone and. And you know we can jointly pick someone or s somehow uh, come up with uh, a consultant who could figure this out for us. I think the other piece for me that's missing a little bit, at least from the conversation so far, is what is our framework for making these kind of assessments and what is our process? And so, um, if you know, if we're looking at our mission, do we have an equity framework around this conversation about what kinds of services are most needed on the island, for instance? Because if I remember right, the the pair mix that we have there looks a little different than than other sites. And so, how do we make sure we're meeting the needs within the safety net? You know, there. Um, and so that I mean, for me, that would seem like a framework, but I don't know if that's been applied to kind of this sort of having to contemplate decisions of this magnitude, but it would seem important to me to have that as part of the conversation. Right, and, and I, I think part of, part, of, part of what we're framing this initial report on is what kind of summarizing what's been done so far and what, what is the critical path, you know, what, uh, what kind of needs assessment needs to be done. I, I, I think that it became clear that it needs to be a needs assessment of more than just uh, uh, what Alameda Hospital is currently doing or the population they're serving. Uh, I think that um, uh, the other, there's a lot of other things that go into this as well is, you know, is it, uh, one of the concerns is if in a time of an emergency, uh, could people get off the island, you know, if there wasn't an ED at, at Alameda? And, you know, that needs to be something else that needs looked at um but i i think i think what our what our what we have done is our charge was to kind of go through and kind of do a kind of a systematic assessment of our, on what has been done so far and then to put together a critical path on the next steps and put it together in a way that's both 
uh, financially feasible and uh, is time sensitive. Okay. <laughs> Just to echo uh, Chair Bellotta's, uh comment, I, I, I think, you know, what's going to happen to us is we're going to have to really get in touch with our core values. Uh -huh. and, and one of those core values is going to be what do we do with social determinants? What do we do with issues like racial inequality, which have just been exacerbated by disaster after disaster? Um, and how so doing the sort of feasibility study, I think, has to fit th th those questions have to fit into it, not done, not done separately. Yeah, is what I would advocate for. Yeah, you mean done, being done in this for the entire system, not just Alameda Hospital. Right. So then, you know, there are off ramps. You could then look at feasibility of doing it on your own out of, on the island if you can't meet the values and principles that Alameda Health System is trying to meet. And we could be a partner somehow in, in helping uh, helping them get there. But if that part of the system doesn't meet those values, then uh, we got to figure out how, to, how they either meet it or... Yeah, or we discontinue our joint powers agreement. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I, I, you know, I, I think we're, we're, we're trying, to, trying to take a systematic approach. I, I think you'll see that when, when we bring our report forward. And we really were working with what's been done already. We haven't really committed any any dollars or any any outside uh, funding to it. Uh, I, and I think the, the folks from Alameda Hospital would say is that they had hoped, they had requested as part of their initial review that we would review the system with them and tell them how they could fit into the system. And, uh, and I think that for a number of reasons, it was quite strategically at the time, but that didn't, make, that didn't work for, for us. And what they did is they they did a re, there there were several options. Uh, you know, one of them was going in, going in by themselves. Another was joining with somebody else, as I recall, and and another was uh, uh, having some kind of joint planning uh, relation continued relationship with uh, AHS. And the report from Kaufman Hall came back and recommended that that was the best of all options. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but instead of that, then that pushes the ball back to us. And and how how do, how does is there a way that Alameda Hospital can meet their mission and still be within um, in our mission as well? Something that's a win win for both parties. The challenge. Yeah. If I could, if I could not, I guess. Oh. Go ahead, Trustee Reese. Oh, I was just going to ask, uh, I'd love to hear Trustee Jensen's thoughts on some of this. Uh, she's definitely from that board and, and has a really strong interest in this. Thanks, Joe. I, um, I do have a strong interest. I am participating on the seismic committee. I Most of what Ross said is very accurate as you as everyone on our board knows that the decision or discussion at least and, and potential decision to not do the seismic uh for 2020 was a issue that came about because of 
the budget that was facing AHS. And so I imagine that that will be coming up again as part of the budget because we've seen, this board has seen um, some numbers which we, I, I, we've seen numbers suggesting that Alameda Hospital is a, possibly a burden on Alameda Health System. But then as Ross pointed out, when Kaufman Hall requested numbers and requested information and data about the the relationship and the financial relationship specifically between the two organizations that was not able to be made available so i think that we're having a this discussion is very preliminary whatever is coming about right now about from ross's report on the seismic committee is something that can't be quantified or or decisions made because there's no information provided there's really no way that this board alameda health system board knows what the relationship is or can quantify how much how much support alameda hospital brings to alameda health system or how much of a deficit alameda hospital brings to the system i think that ideally there will be some further discussion some partnerships some sharing of of information and, and especially of financial data and as you said joe and other board members have said definitely some uh, a review and some um, comparative look at the entire system together to see where Alameda Hospital fits in. We will all have to kind of get to that. Sorry, go ahead. Just um, that's news to me that the data is not available. Uh, can Delvecchio? Can you explain that? Well, maybe I before you guys. I'm sorry. This is old news. Yeah, let me let me just jump in for a second here. So what what we're finding is even in the report that Kaufman Hall did, when they were trying to break out the cost and the revenues for Alameda Hospital with the kind of accounting system that we have, uh, it's not it's not as easy as one would think. I mean, we ran into the same issue when we were doing the the analysis on the IOP, uh, you know, it, 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 our accounting system is pretty uh, antiquated. And when we're doing a lot of these reports, we actually have to go back and have people take time out of their regular work to, you know, do, do these analysis. And for instance, when we did the Kaufman report, because we didn't have a real good sense of how, how the overhead costs were allocated, uh, what happened is we use cost they use cost reports from a couple of years ago because they just didn't have that accurate of information and there's you know we we've made decisions over the years that really might make sense from a reimbursement from one reimbursement standard you know like maximizing medi-cal but from another reimbursement standard may not make as much sense when you're looking at hospitals being freestanding for instance you know what we do is we we um we take our fringe benefits and we allocate them out to to all of our programs in in certain ways and and they might make they might make sense for uh, doing a medicare cost report or a medical cost report because it maximizes your reimbursement but maybe what it does sometimes is it might take so we we have these 18 contracts you know we talk about for for all of our um, uh, labor organized labor contracts well when we when we do our fringe benefits, sometimes we pool all that stuff together and then we allocate it out to everything because from a reimbursement standpoint, 
it makes a lot more logical sense, right? But then when you're looking at Alameda Hospital by itself, maybe some of the stuff that's allocated to it doesn't make sense. And sometimes the other way, some of the stuff that's allocated back to other things don't make sense. So, like, for instance, without getting into a detail on uh, uh, specifics on one of the analysis that I was involved in, we were looking at one of our programs, and we had allocated a whole bunch of supplemental funds to that program. And then when we went back and, you know, we did it over a spreadsheet thing, and then we went back and looked at the specific supplemental requirements for that particular program, it, we shouldn't have allocated the cost to it. Now, having said that, we didn't violate anything because we could have allocated it to another one of our programs and come up with the same final answer. But I, I have to tell you that, uh, and Kim and I have had many long discussions about this. If we just right now, we don't have a good accounting system in terms of being able to, to determine how our costs get spread out over all of our programs, and including not just direct costs, but, but overhead costs as well. You know, how, 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 what's the best way to allocate? And I think depending on what you're doing it for, sometimes you come up with different answers. And uh, so it, it, uh, the feedback we've got from uh, Riffley when they do their presentation is that a lot of the systems we use are okay. And that uh, we're, we're putting a lot of, lot of pressure on financial people to put stuff together. And then when we ask them to do a special study, it takes them away from the other things that they're doing. And uh, anyway, it, it's, it's, a real, it's a real issue that we have. Yeah, I'm sorry if I can add to that. And I know Trustee Shikun, you you have some uh, great insight into this as well. Uh, I think Trustee Peterson, you you hit the nail on the head. And just just for context for the other trustees, so uh, because the question uh, from you, a logical question, I would think was it would be then why don't we fix that, right? Um, uh, And the answer to that is um, it's a resource constraint, and uh, you well know that over the last two plus years, um, we've invested a significant amount of capital as well as um, human uh, uh, attention into uh, consolidating our electronic health records, both from the clinical as well as the financial realm, because that too was a very archaic, convoluted uh, uh, mismatch of of challenges for us as an organization. Because of that, uh, both of those kind of things that you would need to deal with this were effectively tapped out we had to make the conscientious decision that uh, a, an investment of this magnitude basically meant that for an organization that doesn't have reserves, doesn't have excess staffing, um, that we didn't have the ability to both work on this major thing, which we absolutely should do. Uh, we actually have a couple of other things that fall in categories like that, that because of capacity constraints um, and resource constraints, we basically said we got to make some very tough choices here and, and, and Epic, as expensive as you all know, we've talked about it for a long time. It is basically sucked all of that up. Then you combine that with rehab relocation that we had to find along with uh, now uh, uh, Alameda, which we committed and we have to find uh, uh, not to mention then all, uh, all of our debt obligations. So uh, we have been overly taxed out, um, uh, but this is absolutely something we have to get to because as Trustee Peterson said, that kind of craziness of how to, apply resources across different um, um, uh, 
um, cost centers and programs in order to optimize reimbursement is the nature of the world that we live in. So we need systems even more so than other organizations that have the ability to do that type of um, cost allocation, reimbursement allocation in a much less human capital uh, uh, contingent and reliant manner so that when you ask very logical questions, you and other stakeholders, those answers can be provided with as much fidelity as you need to be able to know that we're, and we want to provide you to give you uh, as honest of an answer that doesn't take like, you know, three months of people uh, really focused on doing an analysis of, of, of this magnitude or of the magnitude that these things require. There's not an information about, or not an issue about transparency or sharing of information. I want to be unequivocal about that. It absolutely hasn't been that and, 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 and is not that. It's about being the reliability of that information we share and being sensitive about those um, contingencies in the construct that we're currently in. Now, having said that, it, it, it's not all negative. You know, Epic has really helped us to identify something, even on the finance side, some of the issues we have, right? And I think... Absolutely. Path has talked about that before, you know, making sure that we have all the stuff that we can bill for, that, you know, we're getting the stuff from medical services and so forth. And, uh, I, and I, think, I think what Epic has helped us do is it's sort of like helped us to look at the dike and re- realize where more of the holes are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we still, we still need something to fill the holes with. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm going to be advocating, even even in the face of uh, a daunting budget gap, for us to do what we did with Epic on the finance side, because we need to move from you know 19 the 1970s to uh, the era we're in now, and be really able to do analytics so we can make really uh, informed decisions about where we put our resources and where we don't. And that it really boils down to, you know, we just have not had enough capital at the end of the day and it, that allows for that. So um, I think we got to do that. Um, it, it, it's, so I've actually asked uh, Kim to start putting some numbers together, uh, Del Vecchio and Kim to put some numbers together. And, you know, I don't think it's outlandish. I think we can get there. It's not, it's not an epic cost. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I guess the, the only other thing I would I would add is that you know the the financial questions or the blind spots that we might have aren't necessarily the driver of the decisions we have to make, and so I just would want to push us to say you know what are our values, what is our mission, and how do we um, you know if something is um, you know is losing money and it's not serving our mission, then we obviously need to fix either you know the revenue loss or make it more mission aligned, right? And so I think though, so it has to always be that dual conversation around quality and mission, along with with the finances. So, and I, I totally appreciate the complexity and the way that you break it down, Trustee Peterson is super helpful. Um, I think just to, to understand how how nuanced it is. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that there's other questions that we need to answer, and some of them aren't going to be found in Epic, right? Because they're going to be about to what extent are we moving the needle on patient outcomes. Um, how vulnerable is the patient population that we're taking care of and how well are we doing in, in providing the service. And so if we are saying, okay, this site is taking care of all these vulnerable seniors and it's really unique in our ability to do X, maybe that's what we need to grow. And that's not only a financial decision. It, it is going to be about the financial as well. But it's also, 
I think it's also driven by um, the service that we're providing. So I'll just keep pushing on that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're on the same page. We're on the same page. I, I, there needs to be a needs assessment based on what the needs of the system are and the folks that we serve, and that has to come first. And the needs of the area. I mean, I think we are talking about geographic areas as well, and I think that that's always a challenge with us where we're located, and we have a big county. Yeah. Um, and so, and we have, yeah, so I, I think that there's also the geography and the access. Um, those are all really real considerations when we talk about um, our role in the safety net. So Yeah, I mean, I, I would just add that, Ross, you shared the, the perspective on the island of worrying about health care access on the island. I would say, well, if you're a poor person, trying to get on that island is a nightmare. Um, so it works both ways. And we have to analyze where our interests are in that. Um, let me just say, uh, just in case people aren't aware, Alameda isn't actually the, an island of affluence, and there are definitely people who are vulnerable and low income that live in Alameda. And that's kind of exactly where I was going, Trustee Jensen. Like, to what extent is that site serving that population? Right. Could we be doing more to reach that population if we're not? Could we be demonstrating, like, more impact by doing some more targeted outreach to certain groups or, you know, like other partnerships that could make it, um, you know, and this is really all theoretical because I don't have the information or the data in front of me, but just um, just as you think about um, making all programs more mission aligned, these are the kind of conversations that you have, right? It's like how do we make sure that we're reaching the intended target audience and they do live there on the island for sure and and i don't know what the utilization looks like and so to me a needs assessment would be asking those questions and answering those questions yeah right and and a global needs assessment not just of alameda but of the entire system that too great well that turned out to be a pretty robust discussion i thought that was only going to take 30 seconds (laughs) you said russ (laughs) Uh, okay, anything else on that? No, we're just, we'll, we'll be getting back to you, but I, we're on the same page. Okay, fantastic. All right. I had a motion a, a few minutes ago. Approval. So, uh, Trustee Abelada, uh, Mike, if I could just bring up one point. You know, at QPSC, there was a modification to the list of the policies that were approved. And so if uh, Trustee Bouquet, if you could just outline the policy that was eliminated. So I'll make a motion to approve the consent agenda with exception of pulling the medical staff suspension policy uh, housed under item E2. uh, We identified in real time in QPSC that there were some errors from it, so it was pulled from QPSC, and that it'll be brought back to us. So consent agenda. um, Okay. Second. So, Mike, can we can we vote on E2 with pulling just that one policy, or do we have to pull the whole item? No, you're just modifying it, so that's fine. Okay. So, can I get a second on approving the consent agenda with that modification? Okay. Trustee DeVries. I've, I've seconded it and thirded it. <laughs> All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Any all righty motion carries thank you okay so now we have regulatory affairs update the status of our corrective actions related to the joint commission survey um, dr bouquet and dr hussein i'll say this is actually dr hussein show but i will say that we 
we had commentary on this in QPSC. And what I do want to say, which was a novel piece of information that we had coming out of QPSC, uh, in one of the reports, they were actually able to put some math uh, on the amount of person hours we've spent in post-Joint Commission um, uh, roundup, almost 2,000 hours just since they came in March. And this, this kind of highlights the discussion that, that we're, charting, we're trying to navigate with, with our, the, between finance and quality. This was kind of a little bit kind of novel for me because it allows us to talk about how much quality costs you know, or, or to, to broach that discussion. And, and as we said in the, in, in the QPSC, uh, I, I think about that little aphorism of ounce of, ounce of uh, prevention, pound of cure. We're paying that pound of cure for uh, some of our, our, our quality issues, which we've had before, with all that investment in, the joint, uh, in our quality team, putting together a plan for the Joint Commission. And then to steal um, Dr. Hussein's thunder a little bit, I, I, I can't say how impressed we should all be with the quality team, with the work that they've done to do all this stuff. Uh, I, I asked our uh, Nilda Perez, who kind of le- leads up some of the compliance efforts, I asked her, are we ready when the, if the Joint Commission comes on June 1st? And kudos to her, she was brave enough to say no. Uh, but she said probably around by the June 10th or June 15th or so, we will be ready. So, uh, again, uh, to, uh, I'm going to applaud Dr. Hussein, as I always do, before he gives his stuff. But a tremendous amount of work, and uh, now I'll shut up. Dr. Hussein, game on. Oh, I don't have much to say after that. Okay, Mike, I think you're pre- uh, thank you for presenting the PowerPoint, and um, trustees, I know it's in your packet. Thank um, God I'm not addressing those emails, Mike. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, so I have to start by saying that um, my favorite uh, part of being chief quality officer is when I am an attending physician. Um, that happened to happen uh, just last week, and I actually shared a couple of patients with Pat, so I can testify that he was quite busy with my patients alone. <laughs> um, and um, actually, you know, I think there is, at least for me personally, there's no replacement um, for actually. Um, delivering care to understand the complexity of doing that, um, the challenges um, imposed upon that when we're relentless in our pursuit for excellence. Um, um, But the other thing that being on service really reminded me of is something that I hope you will hear in today's presentation and frankly for many months to come, which is it is possible to be proud of the people I work with and the community of I serve in the organization I am part of and be relentless advocate for our desire to do better. And I think those are not contradictory statements. Um, when I was on service, um, I was grateful to serve besides people who looked out, my, looked out for my safety when there were moments when I potentially forgot to don the appropriate PPE or, or to gel out. Um, I am grateful for the courage of our staff who took care of COVID patients when they are concerned about their families at home. But two, I am um, appreciate the courage of our patients. The many stories I heard 
um, who are suffering from economic hardship, who still have to take care of their families and are combating COVID. It is that pride of serving with these people in this community that allows me to really dig deep and tell you I am proud of the work we have accomplished, but I am preoccupied for the same reason to not fail. And that is the first principle of high reliability, the preoccupation with failure so that we don't let it happen. And that is what I'm going to relentlessly try to communicate over the next several months that we, as, as we're in our journey of high reliability, we do not go backwards, but we continue in our march forward. So with that, um, Dr. Bouquet, if you go to the next slide, uh, Mike, Dr. Bouquet talked a little about the work um, that the quality team is doing with all our operational uh, leaders. Um, so an update um, is that we still don't have um, written documentation or press release from Joint Commission about when they will commence their service. All they have in writing is that they would be um, stopped until the end of May. However, we have uh, in our communication with them have clarity that when they come back, instead of doing two separate surveys, a Medicare deficiency service for a condition with participation and a validation survey for all of the findings. They're going to actually combine both of those two surveys and do one. And as you can imagine, they're behind in their um, schedule of services, so they're going to combine and do both of them. So after the plan of correction was accepted, um, and you all have had the pleasure of reading uh, that, um, some good bedtime reading, um, each of the elements of performance were then digested into what we're calling um, evidence of execution. So if it, a corrective action plan said there was going to be education and training and a policy, we have created a checklist for that element of performance to ensure that we have a binder, that we have collected a copy of the education, copy of the attestation that people completed that education, copy of the policy, any memo that was sent out, any rounding that was done. So for each of the 78 elements of performance, we will have a binder. Uh, there were about 300 items of evidence across those 78 elements of performance. And I am pleased to share with you that um, our leaders across the organization have already submitted 70% at the time of this presentation. And that number has, is going up daily. That is evidence that th there's execution of the plan of correction. The second is a monitoring dashboard. For every one of the corrective actions, there are metrics that are created to determine whether or not we are um, improving the gap that the Joint Commission found. There are 140 metrics. Some of them are chart audits, some of them are observations, some of them are knowledge assessments. Today, we have data on 80% of those metrics. And I will um, share with you some of the high-level areas where we have opportunity. The final is a weekly um, readiness survey rounding that engages the entire operational teams with the quality team. It's usually a full day at each of the facilities, so it's three days of rounding a week. Um, there are 40 items there, um, and, uh, uh, um, and that's happening weekly. So what are some, if you go to the next slide, One of the, um, Mike, if you go to the next slide here. Thank you. So as I, as you heard, you will, uh, um, and hopefully you've seen when you've been um, in the facilities, the, 
environment is transforming remarkably. Um, and people are taking pride in the areas in which they are working. Um, um, in addition, this work of building the plans, of learning how to go into EPIC to do the audit, um, how to measure whether or not um, the right things are being done has tremendously increased the skill level um, of our managers and directors who are as the leaders of their spaces in this area. Um, also, it's been wonderful, the uh, engagement of our operational leaders to, um, as they are PDFAing and iterating around these improvements, the constant engagement um, um, around how to interpret the technical standards and do the improvements that are necessary. And I think if you walk around the facility, you will see that there has been a visible improvement. And I think you will hear from the staff, including my own um, uh, experiences and staff really being proud, including at the San Leandro staff. Um, and the PACU, for example, who I spoke to some nurses who've been there for 30 years, and they said that this is the first time in the last five years that they have felt a deep sense of pride in their space. To go to the next slide. Next slide. Now, there has been significant improvement, and we have a lot to be proud of. But it is my job to also clarify for you those areas that we must correct before the Joint Commission comes. So before I say this, I want to share with you that these, these findings have been shared with our executive leadership team, with our frontline leaders at our diet huddles, at Executive ELT, um, and know that as soon as these uh, findings were discussed, there has been already tremendous action in, in mitigating these. So I, I want to acknowledge that. So ensuring high-level disinfection competency. So as you remember, infection control was one of the um, condition-level findings. There has been tremendous um, improvement. What we now need to work on is consistency between all of the staff that perform high-level disinfection and sterilization. There's still variability. Um, and so that is something that uh, the front line, uh, the leaders of um, the sterile processing unit of the periop space are working with their staff to make sure all of them are equally excellent and reliable um, to demonstrate uh, fidelity to those processes. Second, crash cart maintenance. This was a governing body finding. And um, we are getting better, but this is really something I expect 100% on. Every AED, every life-saving device needs to be checked. There can be no exceptions. That is the expectation of excellence we have to have for the life-saving device. And there is the second, you know, this was discussed. Already I know people are working on this to make sure at San Leandro, the new VP is checking daily. Same thing at, um, at Highland. The third, suicide risk management. A lot better. But again, here the documentation with the patient population we care for has to be near perfect because the risk is so high. So again, lots of education, training, auditing is going in to give real-time uh, coaching and feedback to the uh, staff that are performing this. Um, and, and so that is an area of focused attention over the next two or three weeks. Um, you heard at the Quality and Professional Services uh, committee that many of the ligature risks have been removed at John George. There's just one or two that are in their final stages. Um, so we want that to be completed before the trade commission comes. 
timely reassessment and renewal of orders for restraints. Um, COVID is a busy time for our critical care units. And so uh, what we found through our chart audits is that sometimes these were not renewed and documentation was not timely. This has already been escalated and being addressed. Um, preventative maintenance of equipment. Um, there was a transition in our biomed um, between GE and agility. And um, there's a lot of equipment across our campuses. And so our operation leaders are working with our support staff team to make sure that any piece of equipment that is on the floor that's used for patient care has had its yearly maintenance. Um, and there's just even today, lots of back and forth emails about our support services team working with operational leaders to make sure there's a daily management strategy to work in a targeted way uh, on that queue of equipment that is beyond its due date. So that work has commenced in a very targeted way to make sure that either those equipment are sequestered or they're maintained uh, as they should be by their due date. Um, and tremendous change in our environment of care um, and the final touches are being placed in those areas where we know there's gonna be focus attention, which is the OR um, uh, and sterile spaces, making sure that those final facilities changes are made with ceiling and wall penetrations, which cannot exist in sterile spaces. So all of that work, our leaders are highly engaged in, and um, as you heard from Dr. Bouquet, um, I believe in the next uh, three, you know, two to four weeks, depending on the rapidity with which everyone works, we will be able to get there. Next slide. So uh, beyond the work that needs to be done to make sure we have a successful Joint Commission survey, which I presented in the prior slide, recall they're going to be coming back very soon after this survey. They've shifted their window up and they're going to do intracycle monitoring. And frankly, I believe I feel a spirit that we can tap into right now, which is we have an opportunity to redefine how we create a environment where it's easy to do the right thing. And we have to think that way for us to sustain the investment we're making right now. So lots of work went into training leaders, leaders, training staff. These are competencies that have to be hardwired. How to do a Columbia suicide risk, suicide risk assessment, how to do restraint orders, how to document um, in sterile processing. This has to be hardwired. Every person who comes on to work in those areas, they need to receive this training. The managers need to stay on top of their competency. We can't let that be an option. It must be required. Maintaining adequate resources to ensure that we can do the preventative maintenance. So one of the luxuries of COVID while um, volumes were low that our staff were able to engage in the maintenance of the environment. So we have to be thoughtful about how we build that time in to continue to keep the environment looking great. Third, some of the areas where we have these critical findings are the same areas where we have interim leadership. So perioperative services, behavioral health, the emergency department, sterile processing department, and our environmental services. These are areas where we have critical conditional findings 
and where we have interim leaders. So, in, and we heard today that we are, some of these uh, uh, slots are being filled. So what we want to make sure is there's continuity in this, in these processes that we are developing during those transitions. So there's stable leadership that's providing continued oversight around the quality and safety of the operations in those areas. And leadership oversight, each leader needs to develop a daily management system to make sure that if they see gaps, they're immediately closed. There's monitoring adherence to established processes and that staff are supported in executing on, their, on these duties. These are the things we have to build in to our operations um, to make sure we don't return to where we were. I think that's my last slide. Um, there, I have a slide in here. Oh, right. Um, so for the governing body findings, um, we, this is just an example of the evidence checklist. Um, this was updated on the 18th. I can tell you that uh, nearly all of the items on this have been submitted. So we're creating a binder. We want to be very vigilant that especially for governing body, we have um, all of this ready to go. So you'll have that for your records to take a look at. So I think that's my last slide. I had another slide on leapfrog, but I think it's probably better to save that conversation for Saturday so we can focus any questions you may have. Uh, on, on our joint commission update, unless uh, um, the trustees would like otherwise. Thank you, um, Sinvir. And uh, do we have time for question comment? Yes. Or do we save this for Saturday, Friday? I think go right ahead, yeah. Yeah. So You can't hear this too many times. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. I meant the Saturday part just for the leapfrog. I didn't mean to um, deflect questions. I apologize. I yeah, no, 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 not at all. I'm, I'm looking at the time and I'm saying that as a former chair of the Audit and Compliance Committee for two years, I'm kind of having a little bit of a deja vu situation here. And I feel like when we were, when we talked in the Audit Committee, we talk about like our internal auditor and it's lean small team to be more in advisory capacity, but that the idea of like ha being in compliance, being making sure that you, you know, the records are many, you know, privacy is maintained, privacy screens, everything else that goes in compliance is the job of the managers and the department. So if you can, um, Mike, if you can show those two, the, uh, the slide which says opportunities for improvement. So I see, and I thank you, um, Dr. Hussein, to you and your team for this amazing uh, work that you're leading with the rest of the staff. But I sometimes just get the feeling that there's a feeling that the quality team will come in and show us what's wrong. Like, so when I'm looking at something like a wall penetration or, um, I don't know, um, uh, preventive maintenance of equipment. So uh, hopefully it is, how, how is this hardwired? Is it the, it has to be like with the huge body of like middle management that we have, managers on the, they, they are the ones who are, doing this or is it the quality team that has, is, has the onus of going around from facility to facility to see the opportunities of improvement? I hope um, 
it's that is not how uh, uh, that is not how, how it's been and i cannot staffed as a as the physician to answer if tanveer or or tanveer because the quality team is in an advisory capacity but the quality has to be hardwired so that everybody's job is quality yeah right everybody's job um, is that is that how it is Def, or do we uh, wait for the quality team to come in and say tell us what's wrong yeah i i i i think uh i i agree with much of your statement and all that tanvir tag team with me here is that 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 we haven't fully built the processes uh I think good operational design vis-a-vis quality and all these things should be designed to make it hard for people to fail uh, the default setting. And, and right now the, the interface between operations and quality we're, are, are, we're showing up those opportunities right now where we can interface those things. So they're not hardwired, which is the problem. A lot of the work is, is in my opinion, ad hoc. And again, I just, that's just one perspective. Uh, and the quality team is the advisory and uh, our own internal eyes on us to identify, oh, a, a process doesn't exist or there's not an adequate communication between uh, clinical and operations on this or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that answering your question, uh, Kinkini? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking just like we have for quality, we have steep dashboard or something like yeah. that. Operations, we should have a quality dashboard because it's not operations and quality. It's quality uh, quality in operations, right? So Equality and in operations and finance. And that's that that's the dialogue I think we're trying to move is, is I ask everything should be seen through, again, from my perspective, through a quality lens. You know, when we, when we make an operational decision, at least part of our workflow should consider does this impact quality when we shut this down or we make this move from uh, this biomed firm to agility or what have you. And the same with finance is what I'd ask. And I, I, I'm, I'm confident that we're now having these dialogues, which we weren't having as much a few years ago. Uh, uh, and, and I think we have a great opportunity to capitalize on the prodigious work effort of, of the quality team. We just need to be able to, to put it in its proper context and see how, where are, where, where, where were the defects in the system, and be vulnerable and honest about where the defects in the system. A lot of this is not on the quality team. The quality team is the identifying body. Um, uh, uh, so, this is Tracy. Let me ask you um, to your to your point. It's not on the quality team, and it's not on the quality committee. I'm um, I'm just wondering. It, it, you you seem to be so confident that we're moving in the right direction, but. Um, but two years ago, in 2018, at the quality committee meeting on May 24th, basically what we heard was we had an opportunity for correction of ligature uh, risk assessment, the ligature risk that John George would be cited as conditional. And this was the Joint Commission report, but the surveyors felt that the right amount of work was being done to address the risk. So yeah. that was two years ago. And then... Apparently, that work was being done then, but then did it stop being done, or was it? Was there just a new surveyor that found more ligature risks? I'm I'm a little confused and, and a little bit concerned, actually. That we're... 
So, Trustee Jensen, I, I, I appreciate that. Let me qualify my statement. I'm, I'm confident that we're moving in this context, within this lens of this joint commission thing. The question is, are we a one-step-forward, two-step-back organization? And that is actually a broader concern, and that, that's going to be a time-will-tell kind of thing. But we're having this dialogue right now because you're exactly right, and that's where I care about trends, and thank you for looking back at historic data and asking, well, we were there then. You know, in two years, are we going to say, oh, we only had, you know, three condition of participations, or we had seven, or what have you? And putting that in the context, that's the bigger dialogue here. But right now, I think we have to be very site-focused on, on what is right before us, which is because the, this organization's sustainability is predicated on us passing the CMS survey because without, without having accreditation, we're done. And, and that, that's what I mean. I, I, you know, watching, watching Tanvir's group and do the 2,000 hours of work, that gives me some positivity. I'll, I'll grant that I've had positivity before, and then perhaps we've taken two steps backwards. Um, but these are, these are the big questions. I'll ask any other trustees to comment and Tanvir to comment if you, if you have or, or any of anyone. This is, this is an essential dialogue which I think we're going to be trying to have a little bit on Saturday morning. So I want to be a little bit, uh, a little bit careful about chewing up all this time. I guess my question, and this may be something we can reflect on and, and circle back to, it, it builds a little bit on what trustee Jensen is saying is, is we're, as the governing body, how do we track on these issues, right? How do we make sure that we don't get blindsided in two years when we're seeing it here in front of us now, governing body. Yeah. Um, we're responsible. We two years ago. Yeah. Well, and I'm, and I'm asking now, right? So if, we, if, if we're responsible for the, the crash cart and the ligature risk and things like that, how, what is the mechanism by which we as a board can, can track on this and be assured um, that it's been co corrected and being maintained? And I don't know the answer. Uh, you know, I, I think I've suggested that is this something that we can be revisiting, you know, on, with some kind of regularity via QPSC? I mean, I would like to think that we have the structures in place to do this through our committees and that if we're not satisfied that we can do site visits or some other thing. So I'm just putting it out there for all of us as trustees, not necessarily to have an answer, but I think it's really incumbent on us to, to figure this out because I think, um, Trustee Banerjee, to your point, um, we, I, I have a lot of confidence, um, in Dr. Hussain and your team, you and your team and have had an opportunity to work with you a little bit more recently and, and really appreciate the expertise and the diligence, um, and the commitment. And we know that this is a large system and in some areas things stick and in others they might not. And, you know, and I mean, I think some of that variability, um, is where we, where we need to be, you know, I'm, I'm sure where your team is already focused, Dr. Zane, and sort of like that reliability, like you said. Um, but then from us in our positions, you know, and this might be a Dr. Bouquet question and a QPSC question, and it might not be something that we, you know, can answer right away, but that's what I'm most interested in figuring out. Like, how do we have a line of sight as trustees on, on some of these matters? Um, because when it says that this is a site citation or whatever that um, is it, it relates to the governing body, and we're named as sort of responsible on this. Um, I are, think yeah, that's on us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I ask that you, uh, uh, well, I think Dr. Hussain should respond to your, your, your uh, question. There's been a couple, couple of questions here, but we started with uh, Trustee Banerjee's 
question about or comment about quality being integrated in operations and uh, not just in quality. And I, I would love to hear uh, what is in, um, uh, how he can respond to your question there. And then uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to add something to it. But please, uh, uh, Dr. Wilson, if you could respond to uh, Trustee Banerjee's question, then maybe it starts and it stems to the other questions that came from that as well. Sorry, I got to uh, move to another room. So I, I believe you're asking me a question, but I didn't hear it. I apologize. Yeah, Tanvi, my question was that, you know, I see the small and mighty team, the quality team as being in an advisory capacity. And when you can come in and advise on what has to be done, but then the sustaining, the implementing it on an everyday basis, having the competency, that the onus of that, so that... And that we maintain that quality is so my question was like whose responsibility is that because it's not for uh, your group to go from facility to facility looking for issues it's for the folks who are in there to have the capacity to say hey there's a hole in the wall that needs to be fixed or there's a equipment that needs preventive you know, servicing, sterilizing, whatever it is. So, yeah. So, um, a couple of uh, immediate thoughts. Um, one is uh, going back to the sense of, um, you know, I think we have a lot of great people. We need to put in the structure and process to help elevate them to be even better. And the, and the second thought about this is I think the quality department can help provide some tools um, uh, that help with how do you monitor, how do you audit, how do you create a corrective action plan. They can provide education around competency. I will tell you from the experiences we had with um, auditing, there is great variability in people's savvy with EPIC, looking at the medical record, defining numerator denominator, knowing what is a correct Columbia suicide risk assessment, a lot of and technical issues that fall within the domain of that operational leader. So I think it's two things. One is structure about how is operations keeping an eye on the daily management that gets reported up. And the second is, I think as an organization, as a governing body, we need to look at where we might have some gaps in expertise within domain and ensure we get the leaders that expertise or we find leaders with expertise. Because until that happens, there will be a deep reliance on the quality team to fill that gap. But also, we need to make sure that um, there is a daily... Ideally, some of this work that you're seeing with the checklist, with the monitoring dashboard for the rounding, that needs to be the daily work of each of the operational silos as well. And, and we're building that as part of the governing body checklist about the multi-level multi, multi -level leader rounding. Um, but I think there's also gaps in technical expertise that we need to reconcile. Thank you, Tim. Can I ask you, because uh, I sense that, they, that, that maybe the perspective that is coming across to the trustees at this point is that, that that's still that that 
work of the monitoring and that work of the uh, um, uh, ensuring that these things are done is still solely or exclusively the domain of the uh, quality team. And I don't believe that's the case, but I'd like for you to ascertain whether or not that's true. Yeah, uh, so you were asking uh, the trustee, or you? No, I was asking him there to clarify further for you. Uh, um, so no, it is collaborative. The rounding that we do this daily, the weekly survey readiness rounding is very collaborative between the quality team and uh, the operational leaders. Um, the chart auditing at this point uh, is. Uh, the quality team does 20, about 25% of the auditing to create inter-rater reliability, and operational leaders who are the responsible party do 75%. Um, so uh, what we, um, now, what the quality team does is spot audits, right? We go in once a week, we're doing spot, spot chart audits. So, um, what we want is that everyone, staff, managers, directors, as part of their daily work, they're self-auditing so that we're identifying the biomed equipment that hasn't been PM. We're identifying the penetrations in the wall. So, so there is that, that high reliability culture is what we're trying to build, that we can't let um, these things pass, we have to address them. We need to build that into our every daily, everyday work, the preoccupation with failure. So, so that when the quality team audits or is rounding, we see fewer instances of that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what I'm asking you, uh, just for a further bit of clarification though, is relative to the experience over the past couple of weeks since this survey, is it your understanding that the quality team's rounding is the only rounding that's occurring and the only auditing oh. that's occurring, or is there additional auditing from the manager? I know there's still a journey to go. I think that what we want to be clear is we all want to get to a higher level of, of reli high reliability. I think that's absolutely the case. I want to clarify that the, the auditing and the amount of work that uh, the team has been doing, which is fantastic, that that uh, that culture and that direction, it's, the path is being forged already is the understanding that I have and the conversations that we've been having and the monitoring that I've been observing as I've been rounding. I'm not sure if that's coming across, and I want you to clarify from your perspective that that is uh, uh, the direction that we're in. Yeah, let, let me jump in. Yeah. I was the one that brought that up. Like, I was saying this from the audit perspective where we would say again and again and again that, it's not the internal auditor who goes in and does the audit and finds out, hey, you guys don't have privacy screens on. You're leaving the door unlocked to the medical records section or the other. Like that kind of self-auditing should happen every time. So it's not post-joint commission, but pre-joint commission too, like this TJC thing. Yes, they came eight months before the window, but was an open eye-opening, um, you know, a report on like some of the kind of stuff that you would think what is happening, it, that you don't have to be in a window to make that happen. So that was my thing is that often like, do we have the DNA? Do have we internalized that enough that that's happening? I, I see that it's happening now, 
but obviously it wasn't in our DNA, right? That's why that's why we were where we were. That's right. I, I think that's right. I, I just want to make sure that it's clear to you that that is the direction that we are in, and, yes. and that it's complemented, uh, as it always will be, by a quality team that is still uh, uh, in the seat of being the rel- the in-house regulatory or, or uh, um, uh, go- not governing, but regulatory and oversight experts. So there is an expertise around standards and. Uh, uh, the process of auditing that they will always have that helps to inform the culture of continuous improvement. And and, and I'd like to, if I could speak to other pieces of this, um, there will always be, I think, um, uh, situations where an organization's uh, performance in a, a in a survey or in it is contingent on one the priorities of the surveyor, the expertise of a surveyor, and the focus of and what's going on in the organization at that time. So it, it, I think a, a great example of this is in fact the ligature risk that was identified. Some of the other pieces are variable; they're going to happen, like you know you get erosion over time or something like that, and you deal with things. But let me say the ligature risk piece. As you all will recall, and I certainly do because it was a point of great uh, frustration for me, um, we spent millions and millions of dollars and spent a lot of time like uh, uh, dealing with doorknobs and handles and the doors themselves and, and uh, uh, other identified ligature risk in the organization, including some of the bed, beds uh, that we were uh, dealing with in the organization. Um, a surveyor's uh, indication or, or assessment of a ligature risk could be different than any other surveyor. So such that when we complete this work, someone else comes back and says, look at all the wonderful, robust work you did. I'm going to assess it, and it looks like you are all done. And then someone else comes in several years later and looks at the exact same thing and goes, nope, that's wrong. And then you get a citation. It does not mean that there was an erosion there or the organization wasn't doing its own assessment. It's someone else's perspective is that's a risk. That's a problem. And now you either agree with that and you have to deal with it or you can contest it. But if you don't, then you just are acknowledging, Hey, someone has elevated my knowledge. It does not mean I let something go or I fail. That's just, that's just that type of example. In other cases, it absolutely does mean that. It does mean that things have backslid or, as uh, Dr. Hussain was pointing out in this slide, that you have kind of organizational holes that happen, right? You had a strong leadership, you had great focus, then you went to some other priority, or there, dare I say, as I was sort of alluding in QPSC, um, your organization takes your limited resources and you start to focus on something else because you're always focusing on something. Having that type of reliability that we want and the point that I've been making in some of our communication requires a lot of resources at the management level not e- or the operational level, not even in the quality perspective to your point that it has to live within there. So when we start talking about, as Dr. Paquette is astutely pointing out, uh, funding quality in an organization and funding it to that level, you're going to need additional resources to do it that we don't actually do as an organization right now. We're always trying to make the operations as thin as possible to match the services that we're delivering with some degree of, uh, of, of nodding or uh, uh, attention to quality and consistency, but not, not really to the degree that I think you're rightfully pointing out an organization should be espousing to get to. So we need to get there and we can get there with some of the existing resources we have, but we will need more resources. And you'll see some of that in the budget presentation where you'll see a lot of the 
additional costs and investment that we are seeing uh, a need for will come from that point. And the last thing I'll say, you might have, you might recall that during last year, that, that was sort of underscored this point, um, when we were doing the budget and we were trying to, you know, find new revenue and cut costs to try to make things work, I said, you know, I'm getting really worried that the pressure we're putting on the organization uh, is getting to a point where I'm concerned about quality. I'm concerned that we may be putting people in risky situations. I'm Never, I can't say that I was a soothsayer and knew that uh, we would have this uh, horribly unfavorable John Commission uh, survey. But I, I did feel that we were just getting way too tight with operational efficiency to the point that we don't have that kind of co- cover that you need to comfortably be looking at and reliably be looking at the quality of the care that you're providing embedded in the operational infrastructure. So uh, I think this is exactly the way we should be going. And uh, I I think we should continue to have uh, this dialogue to figure out how we as a board and as a leadership uh, resource the organization to provide this, uh, to meet this expectation. What what, what I'll say is I, uh, obviously we're talking about quality. So this is, this is the wheelhouse that I want to live in. Uh, And I, I, and I hesitate to throw a little bit of a water on a fire. Um, but but uh, we have two hours squared away to do this on Saturday morning. So uh, uh, I ask the, the, the trustees to consider this dialogue, hold it in your memory, and then we'll 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 relight the discussion on Saturday morning if that's okay with our, our, our president. No, I agree, and I think this kind of set things up nicely. Um, just getting the nuts and bolts piece about the actual this particular survey. Um, but then, Delvecchio, I think you kind of laid out the bigger picture that we're grappling with. And uh, just like a lot of the other issues we're grappling with just around you, we can't do everything. We, we're going to have to figure, I mean, we can't do everything in the current paradigm. We're going to have to figure out what, what we what matters, what we care about, what we can prioritize, and, and frankly, what we can afford. Um, and I, I come from the same, you know, kind of purview that I think Dr. Duquette does around. We cannot compromise on quality. So that means maybe, maybe we need to do less somewhere. Um, you know, I don't know what it means yet, but this is, this is exactly what we need to, um, explore. So yes, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I, I ask everyone to chew on these questions and, and bring these questions. I, I, uh, uh, I sort of had a misunderstanding. I thought that we were going to actually do some of this live uh, on on Saturday, and I was gonna we were going to do posters and and have stickies and all that. I have to rethink how we can pe- people can give an honest. Uh, maybe I'll just go build a Survey Monkey tonight or something that people can fill out in real time because I want I want my vision for Saturday was for the board of trustees to answer specific questions for the uh, for the quality team to answer specific questions for the executive leadership team to answer specific questions, the same specific questions, and then seeing all our respective perspectives and putting them together. Because I think there's a lot of common stuff here. I think we're all, um, not, not I think, I'm certain we all want the same thing, which is a high quality organization. And I think we just have, relative to each of our respective purviews, a different approach to it. And maybe quality has suggestions to the clinical service and the clinical service has recommendations to operations, and operations actually has uh, recommendations back to cl- back to the clinical services, uh, who have recommendations to the quality team about how we can be monitored. And and I, it is my hope. I maybe two certainly two hours isn't enough, but I, I want to come out with some type of product because I don't want to have us. I don't want us to have this discussion two years from now 
remember back in 2020 when we had five, you know, and, and um, I, I hope uh, uh, Dr. Hussein and I can do the dialogue service on Saturday morning. So Taft, inside Zoom, you can do polling. And all you'd have to do is give the polling questions to Mike and they would run. And does it, do they come out anonymous or are they attributed to individuals? You can make them anonymous, yes. Uh, Trustee Hernandez, I'll be texting you for your Zoom expertise <laughs> later tonight or tomorrow. Because I have the questions and uh, okay. I think I already sent them to you. So if you can help guide that that tech, I, I, I claim I'm not a Luddite, but I actually think I am. <laughs> no, it's just because I have to work in Zoom almost six hours a day right now. Okay, so I, you're telling me I don't have to build a survey monkey. I think there are only three questions. I can send them to Mike, and you can do an anonymous polling, and then we can all look at it? Yes, I'll talk to Mike about it. Awesome. Thank you. You just saved me two hours. A Zoom expert. <laughs> Tanvir, thank you to you and your team. Thank you, you and your team. All right. I just, uh, if I Go ahead. <laughs> I just wanted to, I'm sorry, I just, I, I would feel really uh, guilty if I didn't clarify this point uh, to go back to what Delvecchio was asking me. There's no way this work could be done, the progress we've made without the attention of operations. And I would not want anyone to walk away from this meeting thinking that. The vast majority of the work has been done. It is my job to show you the work that needs to be done and highlight those areas where we need to pay attention to. Because at the end of this day, the survey is a reflection of the pride we all take in our organization. And that's simply my point. The more that we all work together, if every single person pays attention to the remaining points, we will be successful. Um, and I'm sorry for any ambiguity around that statement, but I, I couldn't let that go and let the night end if I was not clear about that. Yeah, it's about reprogram pre reprogramming habits. And, and helping people be successful, making it hard for people to fail. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you didn't confuse me. No, me either, but thank you for, for that concern. I think that we all have a role to play, and I think as trustees for us, it's really understanding Taft. I think you started to hit on it, and I hope we can get into this more on Saturday. What is the flow of information once it's identified, and, and how does it get back to us so that we know that we're doing our diligence as well? So. Um, so thank you everybody for that. Um, we good on this topic? All right. Uh, okay. So status of the pandemic response. I don't know if you had anything or if you just wanted me to do a quick update on the COVID uh, committee uh, task force. Well, I, I didn't. Uh, I thought you, you could do that. And if you yeah. if anything from the staff, uh, uh, Luis could offer anything, but, but uh, we don't have to. I think the task force... Uh, uh, for the lens for the board and we can answer any questions you might have. Okay. So we've been meeting weekly as the, the COVID task force and that is Trustee Banerjee and myself and Dr. Bouquet, um, as well as Del Vecchio. Um, and we've also had um, our partners from the county um, joining in on, on parts of the meetings as well. Um, I think it's been a place where we can kind of track things um, and explore things as, as things are sort of unfolding rapidly. We're able to kind of 
um, keep eyes on, on, on several items. And so I'll just kind of maybe call out a few of the items that we've been talking about. And then if the, if uh, my partner trustees want to chime in, um, a couple of the items that we've taken up just, um, for, for us internally as a board and with, um, leadership is sort of what does the path for service restoration look like? Um, what can it look like and sort of how we're approaching it? Um, just from a big picture, I think perspective, um, and also um, really kind of drilling down into um, what does the physical distancing look like um, for staff in, in areas of AHS and just really impressive amount of work um, by leadership that has gone into um, making this a fair and equitable um, sort of uh, process across the board. Um, I think in both cases, um, I think we've, we felt really positive about the way things are being approached and then always wanting to flag how, how are these things being communicated sort of across the large system. And so um, I think those are things that we'll, we'll sort of continue to, um, to work on. Um, in partnership with uh, the county, and it's been just really helpful to have um, them participate in some of these conversations so that we can stay abreast of what they're doing and what um, capacity looks like sort of countywide um, and hopefully get to a point where we're really talking about how we're, how we're collaborating and maximizing, and I think some of this will be for, for tomorrow as well. Um, but some of those topics include um, contact tracing, so certainly testing capacity, which testing capacity is the other, another topic. Um, but as we expand testing, um, then what does the follow-up look like? Because I think we've been saying the testing is the easy part. It's everything after that that is, that, um, that is a more resource-intensive. Um, also, sort of the status around the long-term care facilities um, and really getting an understanding from the county perspective and then how that will impact us as a delivery system um, who is going to be or has been receiving those patients that might um, be or that are at higher risk of poor outcomes um, and certainly countywide um, folks from long-term care facilities um, at least last time we checked in on this did account for a significant number of the deaths from COVID I think 67 percent when we looked at it last week um, and so wanting to sort of track what the plans are um, in terms of long-term care facilities but also how we factor some of these things in as we're doing our own internal and continuous um, uh, surge planning um, or peak planning, or I don't know if we're still calling it surge planning, but um, but at any rate, the sort of that resource allocation. Also, the um, the county's hotel resources um, for people who are unsheltered, um, being able to kind of keep up on, on how that's looking and what the plans are for rolling out more of those. Um, and, uh, and then also the, the, the PPE, um, availability and communication around the use of, of PPE, which is, um, certainly in a, obviously in a much better place for us and everyone, everyone across the country, I think now than it was several weeks ago. Um, but I know we heard from Dr. Ballard around some of the nuances around that, but we may want to contemplate as well. Um, and then last and definitely not least would be around disparities um, and sort of this equity conversation about how do we prevent disparities that we may see um, as uh, hopefully not inevitable but that we certainly uh, could could foreshadow uh, may occur and, and what what can we do um, to understand what's happening and to sort of get ahead of it um, and kind of included within that is our um, concerns that I alluded to earlier about sort of the mental health um, impacts of the pandemic, of the shelter in place, 
um, and just all of the challenges that sort of uh, go along with um, with all of the sort of repercussions um, of what we're dealing with. And so we have invited, um, so Dr. Clannon has been participating, our county's chief medical officer, and also we'll be inviting uh, uh, Kimmy Watkins-Tart, um, especially to have us do a deeper dive on the equity conversation because she's heading up a task force within the county around that topic. And so... Um, so that's kind of where we are. I don't know, Trustee Banerjee, Trustee Bouquet, if you want to add anything to that. I wanted to add a big thanks to Trustee Peterson, who's done the bulk of the um, visits, hospital visits. So thank you, Ross. Uh, I'll, I'll second that too. Uh, one of our trustees is going for the MVP award, and he's probably going to win it this year. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. A lot of hours have been put into the um, to the process, and I really appreciate all, all the trustees, but especially you, Trustee Peterson, you've stepped in quite a bit. Thank you. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know what? Uh, it, it really impresses me how great our staff is our, when you go out to our programs and you just see their commitment, how they, how they have their own concerns, but they put them aside to make sure that we treat the, you know, the population and clients that we have in a good way. Very impressive. I'm, I'm glad that you get to see that, Ross. I mean, uh, we, we have a lot of great substrate in this organization, and it's about how we shape it to, uh, for our own success. There's a lot of great substrate here. Yep. Awesome. Okay, any other, anything else to add? Devika, you've been participating as well. Anything, miss anything? Not from our perspective, actually. I just want to thank all of you. I think your your focus on this and your uh, expertise that you bring into it, your ideas and suggestions, it's like the ones around looking at our remote workforce and uh, thinking of ways to further improve our efforts there, I think have been uh, really, really helpful. The equity pieces, the behavioral health pieces at all has been uh, really, really um, uh, uh, just, just helpful. So I just want to say thank you to all of you. Great. Glad to hear that. Thank you. Okay, good. Any other questions or comments on the pandemic response? All right. If I may, if I may say a couple of things, Trustee Avalera. Yeah, please. Uh, I just uh, again, uh, outside of all the work that you all are doing, I just wanted to just uh, remind everyone that uh, we we have uh, certain you know leaders of our organization. I know that Dr. Hussein is involved with uh, other county uh, workforces that are. Um, uh, looking at different aspects of the pandemic. We've got Richard Espinoza, who is leading the, the post-acute or the, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that um, all the work around that to, to, to recover from the, from the pandemic and continue to, to be vigilant around the work that's happening in those areas. Uh, and then here in, in, within the organization, uh, earlier you heard uh, Dr. Tornovene speak to the uh, work that's happening around testing. So there's there's many people that are focusing on different aspects of this organizationally. Uh, you, uh, we discussed at QPSC, I believe it was a little earlier, that, uh, you know, Del Vecchio and, and uh, Dr. Hussein, Dr. Jamalin, uh, Janet McCannis, or CNE, and myself are, are really focusing and providing some oversight in the recovery process. And so we discontinued our Incident Command Center a couple of weeks ago. Uh, since then, we began the process of really evaluating our our uh, recovery process and how we bring systems back online. We've built a, a very robust tool. Uh, in, in some cases, I think we've heard from some individuals that it was uh, overly robust, 
but we wanted to make sure that we covered all the bases and that we're really taking a very uh, structured approach to bring, to bringing services back online and making sure that we don't put ourselves in a position where we may be compromised as soon as we start services or bring things up, you know, bring bases in for, for procedures. And so uh, that work uh, continues as committee meets. Uh, we've been meeting every, uh, every other day, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, we've uh, looked at uh, the general conditions of the organization uh, as we reevaluate all aspects of it from, uh, from staffing, from education, uh, those people that are returning from their uh, leaves, uh, looking at PPE and PPE utilization. Uh, and, and that's uh, really getting to the granular level of understanding exactly what services are we looking at restoring. Uh, once, we, once we identify the services that we're restoring, what, uh, what procedures are we looking at performing? How many staff does it take to, uh, to perform that procedure? What PPE do they need for each of those staff members? Based on those numbers, do we back into, do we have sufficient PPE to support all the activities across the organization for those number of days? And so there's a tremendous amount of work that's happening in this recovery process, but uh, uh, I think we're, you know, we're feeling really, really good about, uh, you know, the work that's, that's being led by all the different work groups uh, in the areas of perioperative services, uh, GI, Dr. Bouquet and his team are looking at one aspect of this, dental, uh, and all of our specialty clinics where we're looking at performing procedures. So uh, it's, it's uh, you know, certainly something that we're, we're continuing to support the teams. Uh, a lot of work. We've only received one, and we've provided some feedback where they're going back to look at uh, some of the additional details. Uh, but we're hoping that in the next couple of weeks uh, we'll we'll have very uh, robust plans that will have and, and pave the way and provide the guidance for how we move forward uh, so we can do so in a very safe and efficient way. So we're, we're looking forward to that. Thank you for that. Any questions for Luis? Great. All right, so our staff reports, we have written reports. Um, I don't know if uh, if there were any questions um, for our CFO, for our COO um, on, the, on the written reports. I know Kim already gave a nice little update with the Finance Committee. We're good? All right, so Mike, looks like we're ready to adjourn to close session. Okay, so I'm, I'll go ahead and open up the room and I'll uh, join you there in just a moment, okay? Do you need to say your part about the purpose? Bio break. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> The recording has stopped.